Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. How you doing, Manila? You doing all right this morning? Pretty good. I lucked out with a parking spot. You lucked out with a parking spot. Um, I did not luck out with a parking <laughs> spot. Well, to be fair, I do have one, but they don't have any signage on the thing to give you an idea of, okay, oh, what's the street the number and all this stuff. Yeah. The parking Very zone. aggravating. It's like, oh, this is a secret I'm zone, you, even though you can trap. park here. Yeah. D.C. municipality has parking traps. They're using that stuff to fund the city. Oh, yeah. In a way that is so inappropriate. I mean, don't get me wrong. I get that you can't necessarily park in a particular space for a period of time. Fair enough. I get that. But there should be signage. There should be more than, you know, as opposed to like five signs that says at two to three, you can't park here. But at right. four to five, you can park here. And, and at seven to eight commercial vehicles. 15 minute window. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that nonsense. You're trying to figure out, OK, what does this mean? Does this mean I can park here or not? I really I swear it is the parking in D.C. is a trap. It's a parking trap. Yes. And so I'm not sure if they're doing that, number one, to fill their coffers. Number two... I think it's fill their coffers. But also, is it collusion to push you into parking at the garages that charge you like $30 a day? It could be both of those. Like, it could be both of those. Because if you think about it, there's like, limited amount of parking. Are you kickback from the garages? Oh, see, I didn't even think about that. I thought of it from the standpoint of the city is looking at it like all things being equal, all incentives in the world is not to use a parking spot. People are going to try to use a parking thing, and they're going to have to figure out, okay, there are 10 signs here right. telling me every 10 minutes that I can park. It's that nonsense. It's very aggravating. And then this ticket will be $50. This one's 150 So depending on which window that you fall in, yeah. you get that ticket. Oh, the $300 ticket. There's also that. Oh, my God. It's aggravating. How are you doing this morning? You doing all right? Apart, yeah, for me, that's a good start. Yeah. Oh, getting a park is like, yes, my day is starting yes, great. Yeah. Yes. I didn't stub my toe. Yeah. I got a parking spot. This is good. With clear signage. Yeah. This is good. The world good is day. great. It is a good day. It's sweater weather. Yes. We're getting there. It's chilly out there. Yeah. It it's, was in the 60s. Yeah. At least when I got in the car. Yeah. Which I like. I like spring. I don't hate it. Yeah. And fall. I like being able to walk out without wearing a sweater. All things be equal. But, you know, I don't yeah, but then you I gotta, have plenty of sweaters. You got to give up the the sleeveless in the morning. Yes. Or by, the, by lunchtime, you're sweltering. Yes. In like sticky humidity. Yes, yes. So no, I don't. I, w- you don't I would like rather that part. no. I'd rather trade off to to being a little brisk and chilly. Yeah. And having to wear a jacket or sweater all day. I just know the winter. Winter's coming. I remember it ain't last gonna be winter. It's as cold here as it is in Europe, though. Well, last winter. Well, right. I know, right. We at least have heat. We at least have. Um, we can take warm showers or hot showers. Um, okay, nice and those type long of things. hot yeah. shower. You tell your friend in Europe, you're like, don't be jealous. I'm going to take a hot shower. I, I told her. For I was like, like 20 minutes. They were talking about like rolling blackouts. And she was, I was like, what? She says, yeah, they gave the announcement that they may have to have the kind of energy blackouts. And I was like, that's 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 unfortunate. That's, that's your leadership. That's your leadership. That's unfortunate. I was like, you guys. You're paying for your values. You keep jumping on America's bandwagon on this stuff. And I was asking her about that. She was like, well, Europe just kind of follows the U.S., in a direction. I said, but why? I said, especially if you're in a situation where you guys are getting hit for it. 
well, that doesn't really apply. And so- Did you ask your friend that? Yeah, I did. I was very curious about like how Europe sees that and why right. they just kind of go along in a particular direction. She said, well, they just follow America. The trends in those type of things come from the US, so that's enough follow the US. And I was like, well, trends is one thing. Leadership is something else. And especially if it's a situation where our what we want is different than what you want. Right. And that seems the to be... The goals are different. The goals the obje- are different. Objectives are different. And the consequences are different. Are different. I mean, like, when we're looking at it, yes, we used to get, what, 700,000 barrels a day from Russia. Okay, fair enough. We can lose that and still be an oil exporter nation. And worse come to worse, if we need to, we can be like, all right, we can make new laws that says, you can't push that gas out there. We're going to use that gas. We can do that. You can't do that there. You guys were getting 40% of your oil or gas from Russia. Well, that's up in smoke almost immediately. And none of you thought to yourselves, how are we going to replace Like, what are the our energy? consequences? Yeah. How do you, it's like, how do you not think that? It's like, oh, we care so much about global warming. Global warming is destroying the planet. Let's get these coal and, plants fired right. up. Let's Wait, get those well, nuclear plants fired up. Let's do all of that stuff. And is, you still don't have enough. Where's Greta? Where's Gre- yeah. Greta Thunberg? She wasn't over there walking around all the time. Oh, she was. <laughs> she was. She was. Recently, she was on how Twitter. Very angry. How dare you? How dare you? Well, sorry, Greta. Um, there are geopolitical reasons that you're not necessarily going to get the things that you want and the planet is going to turn into a burning cinder because, hey, you know, listen. hashtag reasons. I think she's over 18 now. So I think yeah, she's, she's an adult fair, now. She's fair game. Yes, she's an adult. Oh, what's it? <laughs> now you can jump on her. Oh, now you don't, you don't have to feel bad for jumping on her because she's over 18. I will tell you what. And you can say... Hey, young lady. I'll tell you what a friend of mine You're said wrong. when there was a YouTuber that was a kid. He was like, if you put his gloves on, he can take the hit. Oh. Put his gloves on, he's you fair game. He's a boxer? No, he was talking trash. Oh, oh. And his point was, if you put his gloves on, he's fair game. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. If Greta I... wants to get into the ring, Greta's fair game. I mean, what does she think? That, like, Look, she is going against all of these oil companies, all, all of these energy companies, all of these politicians that are in the pockets of these energy I don't companies. I mind that. It's just, it's that she was defying logic with no, like, it's one thing to criticize yeah. to, to that capacity, right, where she was at, trotted out there yeah. by these big agencies across the green agencies around the world, trotted out there, but they provided her no real solution right. once she gets out there to share her outrage yeah. of her, her the youth of See, her age. I don't really hate that too much. I, I mean, look, there's some things where you need to be uncompromising about, even if you don't have a pathway to get to. So, fair enough, right? I mean, she's 14. I don't expect her to have right. come out with like, okay, here are all of my solutions to climate. Well, I don't expect at that. At least offer something. She's just walked they're using her as a tool to say just outrage. How dare you? Yeah, how dare you? Dare you. And when really, you know, there are geopolitical issues yes. around all of this. Oh yes. Which I don't think at fourteen she could understand no, she at couldn't. the time. But to be fair to her, you know, if you're so. looking at the globe and you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to inhabit a world that is going to be a burning cinder. Right. Well, that's I if everybody tells you that. Yeah. If everybody tells you that, that it's happening tomorrow when you have AOC right. telling you you're going to die in 10 years. Right, right. It's like, oh, my God. When you're 14, you're like, really? Yeah. I'm not even going to hit 25. But let's like, say it's not 10 years. Let's say it's 30 years. Is there a difference between 10 and 30? Especially if anything that you do has to take place no, over think, a long period of time. Yeah. Meaning any change is going to take... The world's a, not going to stop in 30 years. No, the world's not going to stop in 30 years. I mean, and to be honest, even in 100 years, it's just burning cinder. Like Donald Trump's thing, well, it's the wildest thing ever when you look at his... Slow um, it down a little bit. It was like 100, I think he said 10 degrees over the course of like 100 yes. years. Yes. And you're looking at it, you're like, 10 degrees? That is astonishing. That's, that's those numbers. a lot, Yeah, that's a lot. And then you're talking about the oceans rising. I guess my point is... At a certain point when you look at it, 
in any individual moment. It takes so much time to make any changes associated yes. with it that the changes that you make almost have to be almost immediate for anything and to take place in the long term. I have a perfect segue for this yeah. because the climate change stuff is like a moving runaway train. Yes. And it takes miles to stop a moving train. Like right. They literally have to plan their stop like yes. a mile away. Yes. And well, speaking, of note, railroads, speaking of railroads, speaking of railroads, that is the big breaking news of the day is that there was supposed to be an impending rail strike That's right. that was going to start today. Mm-hmm. Amtrak, along with uh, the big cargo uh, railway companies, were banding together to have a strike. But literally, as I woke up this morning at around 4.30, yeah. President Biden, I'm sure it wasn't his announcement, but President Biden announced that the White House has reached a tentative deal to avoid a national railroad strike. Yeah. So after roughly 20 hours of talks between union leadership and uh, railroad labor negotiators being hosted by Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, that's hit the pause button, yeah. apparently. So, so far, we know the deal gives the union members an immediate 14% raise with back pay going all the way back to 2020 during the pandemic. So raises totaling 24% during the five-year life of this proposed contract. That's going to go 2020 through 2024. It gives them cash bonuses of $1,000 a year. Um, and they're about to release some more details. So stay tuned for that. But um, it sounds like... They're trying to avert yeah, it. Yeah, because that would be devastation. Devastating is for understatement. This economy. So. You're talking about moving goods, services, people, I mean, all that literally stuff. Literally everything. Stop. The president everything. have Congress has powers over the railroad just because of the importance of railroads. So they can call for, you know, like a special person in order to help negotiations and those type of things. So a we'll special see. master. Yeah. Yeah, a special <laughs> master. But we'll see. I mean, the last I saw, and maybe you were more updated than I am, that there were a few companies that were holding out. Well, there were a few unions that were basically yes. holding out of the thing. Yes. But so. they were wanted. They called it draconian, saying that their sick benefits and everything else were basically draconian. Um, but we'll see. I mean, but, this would be yeah, massive. We'll, we'll talk about this. Yeah. David Tawil later in the show, because this the threat, the looming threat to this economy. It's um, huge. Yeah, just yeah, just massive. And, and we know what the threat to the economy looks like uh, in Europe this coming fall and winter. So this could be a hor- could be a horrible global economic catastrophe. Then staying with some more domestic news. The state of Texas, the Lone Star State, will continue to send undocumented migrants to sanctuary cities throughout the U.S. until President Biden takes appropriate action to secure the U.S. southern border, says Governor Greg Abbott. He said, we will continue busing migrants until Biden secures the border. Now, he tweeted that out. And now Governor Abbott emphasized that mayors of so-called sanctuary cities in the U.S. are complaining they are overwhelmed by several dozen migrants arriving from buses from Texas, but they are only a fraction, he says, of what Texas faces on a daily basis, which is, that's accurate. Then U.S. passenger railroad service on Amtrak is canceling long-distance service today as the threat of the massive strike from rail unions uh, looms. Amtrak said in a statement to Sputnik, while we are hopeful that parties will reach a resolution, Amtrak has now begun 
phased adjustments to our service in preparation for a possible freight rail service interruption later this week. For Thursday, September 15, all Amtrak long-distance trains are canceled. Service updates for Friday, September 16, will be announced on Thursday. So again, everybody's holding on at the edge of their seat to see if rail will be interrupted today. Then Joe Biden's administration is pressuring Mexico behind closed doors to accept more migrants from three particular countries, according to Reuters, citing Mexican officials. Amid escalating numbers of crossings into the U.S. by migrants from Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, the White House is seeking to have them expelled under the COVID-19 health order known as Title 42, according to sources, even though Biden sunset that thing. All right. Then the U.S. shale industry executives have warned Europe that they will not be able to come to their rescue by boosting oil and gas provisions for the entire continent in time for winter, says the Financial Times. Although the vast U.S. oil and nat gas reserves could potentially be used to alleviate the European energy crunch, supplies apparently cannot be increased quickly enough to avert winter shortages. Quote, it's not like the U.S. can pump a bunch more. Our production is what it is. There's no bailout coming, not on the oil side, not on the gas side, says Will Van Lowe, head of private equity group Quantum Energy Partners, one of the U.S. shale industry's largest investors. Then on Wednesday, the state of California sued Amazon, the world's largest retailer and cloud service provider, alleging they are monopolizing their market and inflating prices by creating restrictive deals with their sellers. The state accuses Amazon of making Californians pay more than they should for their products, quote, For years, California consumers have paid more for their online purchases because of Amazon's anti-competitive contracting practices. That's California Attorney General Rob Bonta making a statement there. He said, Amazon coerces merchants into agreements that keep prices artificially high, knowing full well that they can't afford to say no. Then to international news, The U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Wednesday advanced the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022 that would provide the island with $4.5 billion in security aid and another $2 billion in loan guarantees, uh, authority for the purchase of military equipment. The lawmakers passed that bill, moving it for consideration by the full Senate, according to a statement from the Foreign Relations Committee ranking member, Jim Reich. Quote, We must get ahead of a future crisis and give Xi Jinping reasons to think twice about invading or coercing Taiwan. I hope the full Senate will vote on this legislation soon. Then Armenian demonstrators have blocked Marshal Bagramyan Prospect in central Yerevan near the parliament building on Wednesday, calling on their prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan, to resign. Earlier in the day, Pashinyan told the parliament he was ready to make tough decisions and sign documents necessary for long-lasting peace in Armenia, though other measures, including declaring martial law, were also, quote, on the table. 
Protesters took to the streets later on Wednesday saying Pashinyan was ready to make concessions to Azerbaijan and calling on more people to join the demonstration. Then Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and China have signed an agreement on the construction of a railway between those countries. Kyrgyz leader Sadir Zaparov's press service talking to Sputnik said, In Samarkand, the Republic of Uzbekistan, on the sidelines of the Summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or SEO, an agreement was signed between the Kyrgyz Republic's Transport and Communications Ministry, the Transport Ministry of the Republic of Uzbekistan, the National Development and Reform Commission of the People's Republic of China on cooperation on a draft to build a China-Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan railroad, said the spokesman. And two banks were apparently robbed in Lebanon by customers who wanted access, get this, to their own money. In the first case, a woman and a few associates entered Blom Bank, it might be B-L-O-M, Blom Bank, in the capital city of Beirut, brandishing a gun. She left with $13,000 from her own account, according to Depositors Advocacy Group and through Reuters. Now, a short time later, a man in the mountain city of Alley entered a bank med branch armed with a gun and demanded some of the money trapped in his savings account. Now, last month, a different man held up a bank in Beirut to access his funds to pay for treatments for his sick father. That man took six hostages until he was able to access roughly $30,000 of the $200,000 they had locked up in his account. So that could also be quasi-funny news of the day because these people robbed but took only their own money and still left some money in their accounts. All right, tech news. The Norwegian government has allowed the country's intelligence service to test a surveillance system that can capture large amounts of information about Norwegian citizens. The intelligence service is meant to monitor threats against Norway from abroad. It's not allowed to monitor Norwegian citizens within the country's own borders. However, the new system will make it possible to capture large amounts of data, but about Norwegian citizens. National broadcaster NRK is reporting. Earlier this summer, the nation's defense ministry sent out a proposal for changes to that new intelligence act, which features what has been referred to as, quote, facilitated collection and would allow the intelligence service to collect and store mass data communications. The law has not yet been introduced because, among other things, there are concerns it may violate Norway's human rights obligations. So it sounds something like the Patriot Act. All right, then official funny news of the day. Prince Andrew, who was accused, as you know, of sexual abuse back in August of 2021, is among the possible candidates for a counselor of state, a position to stand in the UK monarch when they are ill or out of the country. So basically, fill in. King Charles, his elder brother, King Charles III, is expected to appoint five counselors, including his own spouse, and the top four in succession to the throne. Currently, the most probable candidates are 
Charles's son, Prince William, William's little son, Prince George, Charles's other son, Prince Harry, Queen Elizabeth's second son, the king's brother, Prince Andrew, and Andrew's daughter, Princess Beatrice, according to Sky News. Now, Queen Elizabeth's daughter, Prince Anne, though arguably one of the most well-respected royals, will not become counselor since she is only 16th in succession line. Then this day in history, back in 1588, the Invincible Armada sent by Catholic King Philip II of Spain to overthrow Protestant Queen Elizabeth I of England is defeated in the English Channel. In 1916, World War I, tanks are used for the first time in battle at the Battle of the Somme. 1959, Nikita Khrushchev becomes the first Soviet leader to visit the United States. In 1967, U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson, responding to a sniper attack at the University of Texas, Austin, writes a letter to Congress urging the enactment of gun control legislation. Then in 2008, this day in history, Lehman Brothers files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, making it the largest bankruptcy filing in U.S. history. That'll do it for your headlines this Thursday, September 15th. You're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. So I want to have a conversation about the way Western media has been reporting the Kharkov offensive by Ukraine. And look, oftentimes during this entire conflict, the Western media has come across less about what is taking place in reality and more about what they want to take place, meaning their feelings tend to get into the reporting as opposed to basically reporting what is. And this offensive has emboldened their hopes. And I kind of want to put a damper on that. And kind of point out that, look, even though this may be a propaganda win, it doesn't necessarily change the context of what's taking place on the ground. And again, the issue with Ukraine goes beyond Ukraine, meaning that the issue of what is taking place on the ground from the standpoint of the larger context hasn't changed. Only a very specific instance. They got a black eye. That's not the same thing as winning the fight. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm drawn with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And as I kind of did my monologue yesterday, pointing out of the Kharkov region and how this was somewhat of a black eye and how it points to this inability to have enough troops to basically cover what you have while also making additional gains. Well, the Western media has been reporting this with a certain level of, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, ebullient about it. They're happy. They're they're excessively happy about it. And they're acting as if this somehow changes the context of the war. You get reports in Financial Times, oh, this hurts the supply lines. You get other people, oh, the exhausted Russian military. And I want to point out that they said this on every lull in the fighting, meaning every lull where it seems that there's a repositioning of forces where they basically go on to make further gains, the Western media hyperventilates, oh, the Russians have exhausted themselves at this particular moment and the Ukrainian military is going to make gains. Nothing could be further from the truth. Again, as I pointed out the other day, it seems that Russia can basically win every battle, but the issue has to do with whether or not they have the, let's say, manpower, the force distribution to be able to hold their gains while additional making additional gains. Well, that's almost secondary to the point, though, about whether the context of the war has basically changed. And I want to point out 
that it hasn't. The issue with Ukraine, again, is beyond the issue of just Ukraine. Yes, you have people who are fighting on the ground. But if you really think about it, the entire West has basically gone to war with Russia. Russia sent in an expeditionary force working with the Donbass republics. And those Donbass republics has basically been taking or liberating the territory, depending upon the point of view that you want to take. And that hasn't necessarily changed. With the Kharkov offensive, you had a bunch of other potential offensive that Ukraine has basically launched, where they basically suffered massively for and didn't make any additional gains. On top of that, you have the Russian military surrounding or trying to encircle Bakhmut, which again is this kind of pathway to Kramatorsk, um, Slavyansk, which is the mainstay of the Ukrainian military. I'm making the point that regardless of the loss of Kharkov, which again, it seems that Russia was repositioning their forces before that offensive took place. Nothing has really changed. The situation for Ukraine is still the situation for Ukraine. The situation for the West is still the situation for the West. And all things being equal, Russia is still pursuing their gains on the battlefield. What I want to point to, though, is beyond the encirclement of back mode, beyond the fact that Ukraine couldn't make additional gains, beyond the fact that the gains that they did make cost thousands of Ukrainian lives, I want to point out that the situation from the standpoint of the West is still dire. I mean, regardless of what happened from the standpoint of Kharkov, the West still doesn't have the energy that it needs. The industrial production of Western countries are taking a hit, meaning if you're talking about Europe, the 15% reduction in energy that they're basically trying to put on those countries doesn't seem to be enough. And as we keep pointing out, winter's coming. And this isn't the white walkers. This is people basically freezing in their homes because they can't afford the energy or that energy is not there. That's not a good look. I mean, when you get this thing where they're talking about rolling blackouts in Europe, again, this is not Timbuktu. This is Europe. Are they going to accept this? When I was over there, there were protests taking place in Prague. Prague of all places. Do you know how beautiful of a place Prague is. And for the people there to be cantankerous and angry about the government and what that government is basically doing and how it's latched itself on to the U.S. and jumped off this particular cliff without acknowledging or even coming to some kind of conclusion of how they were going to get the energy that they needed to propagate themselves. To make this situation that much worse, you even have, like I said, the industrial production shutting down. You get the U.K. that has no way out, at the very least, the people don't see a way out. And yet they're still tying themselves to Ukraine. As I said, there will be political instability going place in Europe as a direct result of the economic instability that is going to hit those countries. And those world leaders are going to have to stand with the world and explain why Ukraine mattered that much. And again, even if they accept your premise, meaning even if they accept, oh, Putin is a madman, Putin is doing this, Putin is doing that, Putin is God man around the world. They're not going to accept that Ukraine is worth their not being able to get a hot shower, their inability to pay for food or their cost. The food is basically going up. For that matter, the increased level of food banks, the inability to get energy or for that energy to go up, the increase in prices and inflation. I'm making the point that regardless of what is taking place in Ukraine, Europe is still taking a hit. And it's not just Europe, even in the United States where we get inflation numbers that for whatever reason— People who weren't listening to Radio Sputnik were surprised by, oh my God, inflation has gone up. It's gotten even worse. The point I'm making here is don't overplay what you've seen on the battlefield for Kharkov because what happened on the battlefield for Kharkov doesn't change the context of the current situation. That's what I'm getting at. Meaning we can point out that this is a black eye. 
We can point out that this looks bad. By the same token, as I kept pointing out before, it looks as if the Kharkov, the changeover, meaning the military was always moving over and in Ukraine took advantage of it based on U.S. intelligence and everything else. That is secondary to the point about whether or not the situation <laughs> on the ground has changed. And considering the reports I've been getting about Bakhmut being encircled and about those troops moving forward after the fall of Bakhmut, which is supposed to be a linchpin to Ukrainian forces. This doesn't look good, nor does it look like it's changed all that much. You will get Western media hyperventilating about, oh, this is a changeover. Oh, Ukraine is going to get and now do something fundamentally different than what they were doing before. No, this is still a war with Ukraine, basically backed by NATO, going against the expeditionary force of Russia, which is backed by the Donbass republics. None of that has changed. None of that will change. And the context of this war is still exactly the same way it was before. The West is taking a massive economic hit from an economic war that it didn't necessarily need to start. Ukraine is going bust and maybe even be going through hyperinflation at this point with the rest of the world. And just to make this last point, this is not happening in a vacuum. Meaning this is not a situation where the West is taking an industrial hit, whether their economic production is going down, whether the amount of food is going up. It's not just that. It's also the rest of the world organizing what seems to be a secondary economic order while the West is taking that hit. Meaning as you have to pay more for oil, pay more for food, your economic production is going down. You get countries like China, India, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, all of these guys organizing into a secondary unit where it seems that the West has basically isolated itself and damaged itself while the rest of the world is excelling. It's not happening in a vacuum, nor has the situation changed. This has been one of the worst political and military calamities that I think we have ever seen, at the very least from the standpoint that I've been alive. And that's not changing. And the way this looks, if you're sitting, if you're Putin, you're thinking to yourself, why do we need to change things? All things been equal, we have all of these different organizations that are now coming to fruition. We have the West that is basically in dire straits from an economic point of view that will lead to this kind of political instability. You have Macron who loses his governing majority. You have Bojo who's out on a rail. You have Liz Truss who's taking power. Even the queen died. The queen said, screw it. I'm done. And kick the bucket. Yeah, I do think on some level, as bad as that is, there is almost like a coronary and a coal mine effect associated with what is happening with the West right now. You screwed up. And the Kharkov offensive is not changing it. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment with the one and only Ted Raw. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And if you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. There are multiple stories coming out of New York. And when I hear stories coming out of New York, I, my first thought is, 
Ted Rawl. Ted Rawl is usually the person to talk to. In this very specific case, the story from the New York Times, New York City denied dozens of men shelter beds, legal analysts said. Now, this has to do with Abbott sending people to various parts of the United States, specifically in Washington, D.C., but also in New York. And because of the number of migrants that they sent, there were several people who weren't able to get beds. It was right here, 60 men. Legal Aid Society said the Department of Homeless Services informed it Tuesday that 60 men who came to the intake shelter for single men on East 30th Street in Manhattan on Monday did not get a place for the shelter that night. Now, the excuse was, well, so many migrants were being sent here that we just lost the ability and we didn't have the beds to do so. It's astonishing when you think about it. Abbott. It's causing all sorts of problems. And let's have a conversation with Ted Rawl about it. The voice that you guys are about to hear is Ted Rawl. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Ted, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. How are you guys doing? So far, so good. Better that you're with us. So, Ted, um, I, I need to add to this story. It's uh, directly related to the migrants that have been shipped up to where you are in New York City. Um, as you know, that the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, has been busing migrants all, all over the place to various what he calls the sanctuary cities, forcing them to put their money where their mouth is. And just moments ago, I mean, literally, it, it literally just happened. Uh, Fox News has been tipped off, I guess, and they're there. Uh, Fox News is reporting that two busloads of Texas migrants have just been offloaded in front of of the vice presidential residence in front of Kamala Harris's house, two busloads dumped off right in front of Kamala Harris's residence. So I'm not sure. Do you think she's going to take them in? Or, I mean, she's the border czar, right? You know, the fact that we laugh about that says so much about our system. But, you know, Venezuelan president, uh, former president Hugo Chavez, he did exactly that when there was major flooding throughout Venezuela. He ordered his private residence, uh, all of all of the presidential palaces and government buildings opened as shelters, wow. emergency shelters for people who uh, had lost their homes in the floods. And we're talking about tens of thousands of Venezuelans who uh, who got these accommodations. So it's not outlandish, really. I mean, she could do that. Uh, it would be an amazing optic for her. Yeah. It'd be, uh, you know, uh, I, she could, I think she could probably use... Uh, the uptick in an, in an approval in her approval rating. Um, so yeah, that, that's something she. And by the way, uh, you know, in terms of I've I've criticized Governor Abbott for sort of picking on you know uh, New York's worst mayor Eric Adams right. because it's like you know what did Eric Adams ever do to him right nothing except just be a Democrat and it's kind of but at least the, you know sending them to D.C. that is has direct symbolic resonance and that makes Abbott's point I think far clearer. You know, sending them to Chicago, for example, is like, what's that all about? Yeah. What did Chicago ever do to you, Texas? But, you know, I mean, certainly it's true that the feds have uh, have really stuck Texas and these other border states with this problem. And, uh, you know, they have a ridiculous policy, um, or I should say they have a ridiculous non-policy. Well, um, it's 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 going to be, uh, that, that is, I mean, it's it's some bizarre optics. It is bizarre optics. Right here, it says, as of late August, Mayor Eric Adams said there were 5,700 migrants in shelters. As of Monday, the number of people in the main shelter system swelled to 9,000 in three months, over 55,000, an increase of nearly 20%. And I guess New York, apparently by law or by court order, right here, under the landmark 1981 agreement, the city is required to provide a shelter bed to every person who wants one. I mean, I, look, I, I am one of those people who think homelessness shouldn't exist. Um, especially in a country like the United States. Mm -hmm. 
And whether it's New York, whether it's Texas, whether it's any of those countries, I hate the idea that there are people who are basically living on the streets, especially when the money is there to do something about it. From the standpoint of Eric Adams, does Eric Adams have a point here? Explain what's going on with this, Ted. I mean, looking at New York, it feels like the fourth circle of hell. I mean, it's not just that right here. Here's another article in New York City. Pandemic job losses linger. And they're talking about basically the issues of poverty, the issues of crime and how the job losses in New York City haven't necessarily gone anywhere as a result of the pandemic. What is going on in New York City? Give us, I guess, a bird's eye view. If we weren't living there, if you had to describe it to somebody and the changes, because you were there for those changes that took place. Yeah, Yeah, from the transition. In the 80s and 90s, it was grimy and and. I mean, it was cool for yeah. movies. It looked right. great for movies, but going to visit was another thing. Then I remember the transition, too, Ted, yeah. like in the early 2000s. Um, I think it would have been Mayor Giuliani at that point still. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was suddenly transformed into like kind of like a Disneyland-esque. It's like, like they cleaned Times, it up. Yeah, Times Square yeah. was kind of Disneyland-esque. You had like the the M&M's guys and costumes, you know, out there uh, in front of the M&M store. I'm thinking, My is mom this, went to the M&M store. She loved it. Is this Times Square? Like, shouldn't I be clutching my bag and like walking briskly? Like this, but is it back to what it was in the 90s? Well, Times Square is 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 still as completely Disneyfied as ever. Uh, it's uh, you know that 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 started under Giuliani, as you point out. Um, you know, Mayor uh, Michael Bloomberg took over in two thousand two, and he uh, he really saw that explode. Uh, you know, he was the big Wall Street mayor, uh, and he did he did some good things in terms of uh, public or reorganizing city government. Um, but you know, I look how to describe it. So. Um, Basically, the city never recovered from the pandemic. There are many closed storefronts that seem like they will never open again. And parenthetically, I think there should be an eminent domain law. The city should seize any uh, storefront that has remained unoccupied for 12 months uh, and take them and convert them to anything they want from a community center to a homeless shelter or whatever. They should do the same thing with the apartments because there's so many warehoused apartments in the city that are empty uh, that, again, should be seized by eminent domain because landlords refuse to rent them. Uh, In my own building, there's tons of empty units uh, that people have left uh, because there's, there's no work here. Uh, the, the, in terms of the atmosphere on the street, um, probably the biggest takeaway is there's so many people suffering from schizophrenia and other mental illnesses uh, who are out on the street, homeless, walking around, yelling at you know thin air, um, carrying on, punching thin air, sometimes punching actual flesh and blood human beings. But wait, they weren't there um, before? I mean, like— before not in the, these numbers. Okay. Not in these numbers. I mean, it's like literally uh, you go through a residential neighborhood like the Upper West Side, you will see perhaps in one block 10 or 15 homeless people. Uh, it used to be like you might see one homeless person every 10 or 15 blocks. So it's the different, the numbers are crazy and they're, they're, they're really in bad shape. You know, they're not sort of what we, you back in the, in the aughts, you'd see sort of the, the professional homeless person who kind of had all their bottles and had clearly had been living on the streets for years and uh, had their carts. And, you know, it wasn't a good situation, but they clearly were scrappy and they knew how to get by. The people we're seeing now are literally decomposing physically and mentally before our very eyes. They are literally dying. 
and in some cases taking people with them when they push them in front of subways and stuff. Um, there's there's a complete absence of law enforcement. Uh, there are no cops in the subways. There are no cops uh, on the streets. Uh, you will see sometimes you'll see a cluster of them occasionally uh, hanging out basically with each with each other on their phones, and that's it. They're literally not patrolling. Um, there's no police presence at all. So New York feels sort of like a libertarian paradise. Everybody is uh, completely, you know, this city is self-policed. Uh, you know, really? civilians themselves are in charge of their own destiny. Uh, and, you know, it's. I don't want to, you know, say like, if you walk around here, you're going to be attacked. I mean, you, you probably won't be, but the odds of that happening are probably 50 times more than they were 20 years ago. So it's, you know, it's, it's rough. It's ugly. It's sketchy. Uh, graffiti's making a bit of a comeback on some buildings, uh, not in the subways. Um, the subways are rolling homeless shelters. So it's just gross. There's a lot of litter, more than in the past. Uh, you know, rats, more rats. It's just, it's just, it's a gross city now. What happened? I mean, like, it, that can't just be from COVID. Or is it just from COVID? Yeah, was it like a slow burn? Yeah. I think, it, I think uh, you know, everything was sort of, gentrification always has been an issue here. And it had been running particularly wild pre-pandemic uh, with crazy rents, you know, I mean, like just a totally like in my, in the building where I live, which is a very ordinary, you know, sort of middle to upper middle class building on the upper West. Uh, you know, to, the, the apartment that I rented, um, I, I ended up paying, I, I'll tell you, I pay $4,500 a month. The, the pre, Pre-COVID, that was a 6700 a month, two bedroom. Oh okay? my God. Uh, so and and so now the landlords are trying to get the rent back up again. Um, you know, <laughs> there's literally the, the elevator is not working in the building. They still went up to forty six seventy five. So things are pretty crazy here. Um, and but I think the pandemic was like a shot to the heart. I mean, New York. The thing is, you you know, New York City is all about high population density. Right. And the the and so the pandemic hit hardest here. But it also hit at the civic life of the city. I mean, this is all about crowded restaurants, crowded theaters, uh, crowded clubs. Uh, and if once the lockdown hit, there was no real reason to pay $4,500 a month, much less $6,700 a month for a two-bedroom apartment. So, um, and, you know, and I don't even live in an expensive area. So, uh, you know, relatively speaking. So it's, there's definitely a very, um, you know, it, it's bleak here. Um, I'm sure New York will recover. It's been through, it was went through the draft riots and survived, but it will, you know, but, but right now it, there's not a lot of reason to be here because work is remote. Um, there's, you know, there's not a lot of places are closed and unless you're Eric Adams and you need to hit that club scene, why are you here? The eminent domain laws, have anybody been mentioning that as a way of trying to deal with the issue? Cause look, I agree with you, right? It's like, if that city, if it's not being used, take it and use it for something Beneficial. Well, I mean, they don't even have to do it per permanent, yeah. right? I mean, because their eminent domain has been used um, largely as a sword, less yes. less of a shield. Yeah. So when you hear the term eminent domain, it's kind of cringy. People get freaked out. Yeah, it's, it's like, oh my God, the me. government is going to take X or Y. Yes, yeah. I find that kind of cringy. However, the government doesn't need to seize it forever because they don't, obviously, the the the... Uh, building owners or management, mm -hmm. sometimes it's a REIT, you know, that's where it's a group of people that own, yeah. you know, the the building. They, the government can broker deals to to 
use quasi-eminent domain laws to say, we're going to use this for X amount of time, um, and then we'll return it to you. Or even just kind of as an incentive for them to use it themselves. It's like, you know, it's like, look, I need you you to do do X or Y with this property. There are ways to do that, and why Mayor Adams hasn't uh, used all the tools in his tool belt. I don't know. Maybe it's because he's a rookie mayor. I don't know. Maybe he has bad advisors. I don't know. But nobody seems to be looking for real solutions because yeah. there's not a whole lot of money in the um, the, the realm of helping the poor. Yes. Agreed. No, I think that's right, Manila. I mean, it's totally true that, uh, you know, the pro- properties can be seized on a temporary basis, for example, during wartime, right? Cars yeah. have been requisitioned historically and then returned to their owners if they survived the war. <laughs> um, so, so uh, but, you know, you could totally, uh, yeah, you could totally do that. You could also compensate property owners right. uh, under eminent domain and say, we're going to, the city is going to pay some rent. Look, things are really going the wrong direction. Um, I think Adam's really doesn't have the imagination, the political imagination to run this city. Uh, He just got some very bad news, which is that the city faces a $10 billion budget shortfall. Uh, However, that sounds like a lot of money until you realize that the city has a $100 billion a year budget on average. Yeah, but it's still 10% Um, of the budget, Ted. It's still significant, uh, but, you know, he's talking about, uh, you know, there's, for example, trying to fight back against uh, there's an unfunded mandate from Albany, from the state legislature, uh, to cut class sizes. Right. Well, cutting class sizes is really important for education, and if every parent and every former student knows that. But Adam's uh, against you know, that, it, right? He's against it because, he, you know, for one simple reason, it's going to cost money. But there are solutions to this. I mean, you know, for example, and I've pushed this, I've advocated this for years. And if I ever ran for mayor, I would get this done. Um, we need a stock tax. The city of Tokyo has a per stock market uh, transfer tax of I think it's $35 or something like that per transaction on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. And it makes, uh, because of that, they've been able to have insanely low sales and use taxes, insanely low income taxes. Um, New York, the New York Stock Exchange and the American Stock Exchange are sitting there untaxed by the city of New York. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And they threaten to move. They're like, oh, we'll move to Jersey. Oh, sure, you'll like, become the New Jersey Stock Exchange. Do it. Sure you will. Yeah. Masters of the universe. <laughs> I don't believe you. I don't think you're going to go from Westchester County every day to New Jersey. So, so there's like, there are... There are ways to, I mean, I think when they go into budget cutting mode uh, and they start refusing beds to homeless people uh, because of, you know, things like this Governor Abbott, uh, you know, bus transfer thing, um, you know, it just shows it. That's where basically you're looking at bad management. Look look at trying to to raise revenue. There is revenue to be raised in this city. uh, And, you know, they're not looking at ways to do it. I, I just don't think. Uh, you know, I don't think this mayor ha- or his advisors really have the imagination to do a good job here. Well, Ted, let me let me go back into history here of um, at least New York City proper, at least that that section um, that historically it doesn't matter what mayor is in office. We can go back to the 1980s, even late 70s. Um, Dating that far back when New York City was, you know, what we remember in Ghostbusters, yeah. right? What it oh, looked yeah. like there. <laughs> yeah. That's because that's... It's like it's a character in the movie yeah, almost. Like in, yeah. New York City is is its own living creature, yeah. right? Like in Ghostbusters, it you could kind of... That, that captured to me, those scenes captured what New York City 
was about. And Spider-Man, even going back, going back that far, 40, 40-ish years, what happened with all the different mayors that have um, run the city is because they were looking, you mentioned gentrification, they were looking to gentrify, bring revenue into the city, revitalize the city, and push out the homeless people. And that's what happens when you gentrify. What they do is they, as they did with Donald Trump, um, building, you know, Trump Tower and what have you, what they do is give um, tax breaks, property, real estate tax right. breaks to whoever to come in and buy and up build. this empty whatever yeah. or build whatever on XYZ, you know, uh, Avenue. Or, mm-hmm. So they give them these 20, 30, 40, 50 year, 100 year tax breaks <laughs> because otherwise New York, I mean, you just, you, you hit the nail on the head talking about your own rent. The, the property taxes in New York City are insanely high because real estate prices per square foot are, if not the highest, it's, I think, competing with San Francisco right yeah, now. Yeah, California, yeah. But per, per square foot, they, they would be otherwise getting tax revenue from so many huge corporations, Trump Inc. Incorporate, Trump in, included, I should say, is that they've given these huge corporations huge tax breaks for decades, decades, depriving its own city of money to put in those coffers that would otherwise be used to help in situations like this. Or God forbid, you know, a hurricane hit or or some natural disaster, some flooding, a huge tidal wave. I don't know, whatever. There's movies about that. Um, But the mayors of, of, of of every color, every Jersey color, doesn't matter. They give tax breaks to these huge corporations to prop up business there. And after they take that, they're just sitting pretty and raking in the profits for corporations. The city, meanwhile, is starving. They don't have enough, you know, uh, air, they don't have air conditioning in schools. They don't have clean water in schools. They can't put homeless people into shelters because they've given companies huge tax breaks for decades. And the city is locked into those contracts. Well, Manila, I mean, that's 100% true. Um, I, I used to work at an at a investment bank in the 80s, like uh, everyone should have, pretty much. <laughs> and, and, uh, I've seen and, that uh, movie too, Ted. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, my, my, my dad, Martin Sheen, was awesome. Um, and so it was really, uh, and the thing is, I did see that process. I mean, and it was kind of incomprehensible because, look, the assumption is that if you didn't give developers these massive, uh, you know, tax breaks that somehow nothing would ever get built right. in New York City. And, you know, uh, for people who are listening who are not in New York, just think about sports stadiums. It's not like Wrigley Field, you know, didn't get built, uh, it would not have gotten, it got built without any kind of public funding, right? right. But now every sports stadium is built with public funding. Um, you know, I mean, obviously these buildings, this still would still happen. And then there's the bigger question of really, you know, why do we need them? I mean, I've never really understood from an environmental perspective why we need to have a constant, uh, you know, massive uh infrastructure of new housing in a country that, you know, where the housing is going up faster than the population is going up. Why can't we rehabilitate old housing uh, and and you reuse that and update it uh, constantly? You know, why are we constantly building up in this city? There's, you know, the population of New York City hasn't really gone up that fast and uh, we don't really need to. 
So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's artificial. It's the nature of capitalism. You have to have, you know, GDP go up at least 3% a year, even though the population's not going up 3% a year. It kind of doesn't make sense, and it's kind of unsustainable. But Ted, doesn't that have a direct relation on the cost of housing? Meaning the more housing that you have, the less that housing costs. Like, meaning why? Theoretically. You're right. Like, theoretically. But they, except for, so what they do is it, you know, basically uh, the New York City housing market and in a lot of other cities like in California, you know, it's basically like the De Beers cartel. Like diamonds aren't really worth anything, right. but they control the supply, right, uh, artificially. And that's exactly what happens here. I mean, nobody really knows exactly how much re- residential and commercial real estate is warehoused. Currently, they're saying that uh, about 15 percent of office space in uh, Midtown and Lower Manhattan are em- are vacant uh, post-COVID. Really? I doubt it's that low. I doubt you it's think it's that higher low. than that. Meaning, I bet I bet it's thirty or forty percent because there's no one on the streets. You know, the biggest metric is you can tell like rush hour is no more. Really, um, you it's used that to, bad. You used to you you used to not need to like hold on to the strap at eight o'clock in the morning on the train because you could just like lean up against every uh-huh. the other crowds. You can get a seat now. Okay, oh, that's wow. just wow. not. I mean, it's it's a different world. There's no one on the, the sidewalks. Aren't crowded. You can you know you can walk around Midtown at eight. 8- 30, it's not wow. crowded. Grand Central Station at 8.30 is not a zoo. That's amazing. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bustly. It's like the way it was at 3 in the afternoon. When so, yeah, there's, I just don't believe it. People are not working uh, in these offices anymore. My, my experience with New York, I used to live in New York for a couple of years when I was with um, a woman in upstate. And we used to come down. I used to love going to New York City. My mom even went for the first time. Loved it. She went to the M&M shop. She was like, oh, these so many people here. Like, And, you know, for her being in the South, anybody that you bump into, she's like, these people are bumping into me and not saying, excuse me. And I was like, well, it's New York. Keep your eyes forward and just walk. That's the way it is, right? There's too many people um, in, in the first place. The idea that that's changing is astonishing to me. Right here, here's another article. Anxious New Yorkers worry Eric Adams is the man for the job on whether he's the man for the job. And the article makes the point about Eric Adams and city nightlife. I mean, the idea that you're writing an article where you're talking about all of these issues about poverty, about what homelessness, about people not having jobs, about crime, and then you put in a part about the mayor enjoying the nightlife in New York City. Well, don't let the clubs go out of business. Yeah, right. <laughs> Eric Adams wouldn't know what to do. I mean— is it, I mean, is the, is, I think they said 55% of the public said that New York is going in the wrong direction. Is the mayor, does the mayor even have the job? I mean, how can I say it? Does the mayor in New York have the power to do something about it? Or is this something that's basically coming from the governorship? Like how much power does the New York mayor actually have to change this yeah, stuff? We got final minute there, Ted. Yeah. Oh, two well, minutes. Who, by the way, who, who are these 45% who think it's going in the right direction? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, 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 yeah, the problems with our education system. Um, look, the, the mayor is, in fairness to Adams, the mayoralty of New York City is a very weak office. Okay. Uh, and in many cases, uh, it, just recently, only fairly recently, did, does he, did he get the control over the public schools from the state, for example. Uh, he doesn't control the subways. That's, 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 a, that's the MTA, uh, which is a state agency. So there's a lot of problems. But the, the job of the mayor is basically uh, arm twister, and, uh, and, 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 you know, basically ch- public cheerleader. This is a person who exerts pressure by using the bully pulpit. It's the only thing you've really got. And if you think if you can be a successful mayor by sort of just, uh, you know, hang- hobnobbing 
with influential uh, real estate executives. Uh, you're not. They're just using you. You have to draw your power directly from the people, like the way that Ed Koch did. Yeah. Um, and then and then use that power to exert pressure on uh, you know on the on the police and Wall Street and the other major interests in this city. It's the only way you can, it works. And uh, you know Adams. I mean, most of these mayors don't really understand it. Bloomberg was different because he had his own power. He was his own personal music, locus Ted. of power. Ted, okay. always <laughs> appreciate it, man. Ted Rawl, political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. You can follow Ted on Twitter at Ted Rawl and read his cartoons and articles at Rawl.com. Uh, always an interesting take. Love got, Ted. Yeah, love Ted. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. You know, I hate hearing no stories about New York. I love New York. I used to love New York. Yeah. I used to dream of living there. I used to dream of working for the New York Times. Did you? But that was the 1980s, and yeah. I didn't know. We didn't know any better yeah. back then. Well, see, I, I when I used to live in upstate New York, I used to think to myself, yeah, I could live in the city. I could live. I, I got to be honest. I could pretty much live anywhere. All things being equal, I'm pretty yeah, mutable. Yeah. But that's not what I want to hear about New York. Like, I love the idea of being able to go to a subway. I love the idea of not having to drive. I love all that stuff. I love the chess um, history of New York when you go yeah. to the old chess clubs and the Manhattan Chess Club and there's like these wooden tables that have been there look like forever and yes. these masters and suits. Yeah. They're all weathered. Yeah. And then you get there and it's not that. Like, love playing chess in a park in New York. All that stuff. Like, like It's you not said, what you see in movies. It's not what you see in movies. And yet it has this kind of character. Like you mentioned, I love that you mentioned Ghostbusters or even Spider-Man. Where New perfect. York has a character it, there's, of yeah, itself. It, yeah, the city is alive. Yes, yeah. And it's unfortunate to hear that. I mean... And, and you know, he mentioned Ed Koch, Mayor Ed Koch. I remember Ed Koch. It was Ed Koch who made that deal with uh, Trump Tower and Trump Plaza. Did he? To give them like a 30 or 40 year tax break to where literally... Trump was not getting taxed at all. Wow. No real estate tax on a property that size. Can you imagine? You know, Bezos, if you remember, tried to do that. AOC. I mean, got I don't really, blame them. Business yeah. side, I get it. Look, as but, a business guy, if you're going to get that deal, you're going like, to take that deal, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm taking this deal. Yeah. But it's like those deals would get made whether or not. I hate They're this idea that it's like you show some leg. It's like Jeff Bezos is like, I'm going to build, I'm going to show some leg in New York. Hey, you want it? You want it? Or I may go to California. And it's like, if all of those states we're not going to give you a tax break, they're still going to build that building. They're still going to build it. I wonder what the tax break Bezos is getting for HQ2 across the river, across by the Pentagon. I don't he's know. He's got to be getting something. You know he's getting something. Because he's, that's in my county. Yeah. Um, and he, they, they've released, and I, I'm following, I'm, I'm, you know, I used to do real estate, so I'm, yeah. it's a subject, it's a pet subject of mine. I'm, I, I love it. I find it fascinating. And yeah, I'm a nerd. Um. But they recently, like a month or so ago, finally released uh, sketch images of what the building is going to look like. Yeah. And it's like this bizarre, I can't even describe it. Like yeah. you'd have to look at it. It's it's a bizarre looking. Like the shape that they're making and modern, everything else. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like shaped almost like the Lady Liberty's flame. Yeah. I, is the best that I could describe. Uh, but you'd have to look at it. 
like it, you'd have to see the sketches. Yeah. But a project like that, and it kind of got slowed down because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious to know what what kickback what, he's getting for that what, project. Yeah. What the what Fairfax County is what kind of sweet sweetheart deal he's getting to build there yeah. because it's like an abandoned hotel. What they try to do is they try to justify it saying, look, he's going to be employing all of these people and then there's going to be all of these tax breaks and yes, everything else associated oh, with it. It's going to bring 20,000 jobs yeah. to the area. And it's blah, like, blah, dude, blah. he would build that building regardless. He's going to do it anyway. He's going to do it anyway. Because it's a stone's throw, to, literally a stone's throw to the Pentagon. That's right. You just go under the freeway and you're at the Pentagon. It's like he's doing that because he's going to have some kind of business relationship right. with the Pentagon he's and everything else. That billions. building is going to get made regardless. Bezos is going to make billions from having HQ2 right yes. there because he'll he'll be able to send his lobbyists literally a minute down the road to go kiss up yes. to the Pentagon officials and and secure all these billions of dollars worth of contracts. They don't need that tax break. You don't need to give up, nope. but I'm sure, I'm sure of it. You they know haven't he's released getting it. it. He's getting a tax break. You know I'm he's sure. getting it. I sure hate that it. stuff. It's like, I wouldn't go so far as to say maybe there should be even a law to prevent states from even offering deals like I mean there was one situation they were going to say the taxes that the people were getting were going to go towards like the, the Bezos or the building itself or something like that meaning they were going to take all of this money and say hey, look we're going to give you all of this money just to build this building and it's like dude he would build that building regardless it's kind of what Ted was making a point of yeah. saying it's not like if you don't give them money they're not going to build a building they're going to make a ton of money off that building regardless regardless right. Right. The owner of the building is selling his land yes. or her land is going to get a deal regardless. Yes. You don't need the corporatism Everybody, built into that process. Right. But they but they do that for a reason. Yes. And that's the 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 institutional problem with, with our so-called democracy. It is very aggravating. That is part and parcel of our democracy. Yes. I mean, because when you think about it, I mean, in, even in the way that Ted said, and I think you even made the point, that's money that could be going towards subways. Homeless shelters, schools. businesses, schools. I mean, Eric Adams is basically fighting on the um, school size issue. And it's like, he's doing that. Like Ted said, well, there's a budget shortfall. I don't care if there's a budget shortfall. There are certain things that a society should do. School is one of those things. To be fair, and that's why I brought up the whole tax break thing yeah. for, for building new whatever in New York. He did inherit somewhat yes, of a load of crap. I don't, I don't take I'll it. I'll give him that much. Yeah, I don't take, like, and that's why I asked Ted about what are the actual powers of the mayor and what powers that he have at his disposal. Yeah. I, I asked the boss if that was okay, because that's my favorite uh, kitty, Russian kitty swear word. Uh-huh. Kakashka means poop. Oh. <laughs> and I was Kakashka. teaching the listeners last week that, you know, Kakashka. Yeah. So he inherited a bag of Kakashka. Yeah. A little bit. So I'll give him that much. Yeah. That I give him much. the benefit of the doubt, but don't be in nightclubs. If you don't have this other stuff, done. That's all. It just looks bad. It looks bad. It looks looks very, very bad. And the fact that they bring it up in a news article makes it even worse. It's like this article, oh, everything's going wrong in New York. And yes, the mayor does like nightclubs. It's like, don't close the clubs. Don't close the clubs. Eric Adams got to get his groove on. (laughs) Now, it's just unfortunate to hear that's all. And I hate this. For me, education is probably one of the most paramount, important things a society could do. You're raising kids to be citizens of your particular country. Do you really want to gut the information or let's say the funding for those kids as they grow up. My soft spot are kids, old people, and the homeless. Yes. And the kids thing is radically important. It's hard to get across how important that is. You are raising a child. That child is going to be a member of that society. Do you want that kid to be a druggie? Do you want that kid to be the highest aspiration of what your society can be? Do you want them to go to school? You need that stuff. You don't have a society without that stuff. And yet it seems that those are the things we're basically willing to cut loose and let go. Yeah, it's a big deal. And New York being a big city, I have a soft spot for the city for some reason. 
Yeah. All right, let's get into the headlines. In the news, in the news, President Joe Biden and the White House has reached a tentative deal to avoid a national railroad strike. After 20 hours of talks between unit leadership and railroads, labor negotiations hosted by Labor Secretary Martha Walsh or Marta Walsh. So far, we know the deal gives the union an immediate 14% raise with back pay dating back to 2020 and raises totaling 24% during the five year of the contract that runs from 2020 to 2024. It also gives them cash bonuses of $1,000 a year with more details to come. This would have been a massive, massive deal if the railroads basically would have stopped. You're talking about commerce. You're talking about people moving from point A to point B. Railroads, in some respects, are the lifeblood of this nation. And if those things stop, so does the nation. And so this was a huge deal that was taking place if these guys would have went on strike. More news to come. Let's keep going. In national news, the state of Texas will continue to send undocumented migrants to sanctuary cities throughout the United States until President Joe Biden takes appropriate action to secure the U.S. southern border, Governor Abbott said on Wednesday. Quote, we will continue busing migrants until Biden secures the border, unquote, Abbott said via Twitter, because that's where they always say these things. Abbott emphasized that mayors of so-called, quote, sanctuary cities, unquote, in the United States are complaining they are overwhelmed by several dozen migrants arriving on buses from Texas, but they're only a fraction of what Texas faces on a daily basis. And don't, Kamala Harris. Don't that's forget right. to add, yeah. Kamala Harris has got two busloads of visitors. <laughs> her place. Look, I taking out the legalities of this for the moment, ignoring the legalities of whether Abbott should or shouldn't be doing this. This is ballsy on some level. I mean, you're basically sending I people. Al- I know. That, I almost have to applaud it because that's the wow. politics of it is fascinating he to me. He sent the buses to Kamala Harris's house. Yes. It's like she's the trans, she's the immigration czar. She's the border czar. Yeah, fix Here it. Here you go. Here you go, Adam. Yeah, Here, deal with the borders. And look, I can't, I can't even entirely be mad at Abbott for this, no, right? Because when you think about it, so bold that it I kind of have to. Yeah. I guess. It's, like, I, this is purview of the president of the United States, right? This is dealing with foreign policy issues. And Abbott's thing is, look, we're getting besieged by these migrants that right. are coming to the border. Do We're something out about of resources. it, right? And you guys are ignoring this because you guys aren't necessarily dealing with this directly. Okay, here, here's, here's, here, New York, take it. Here, Washington D.C., take it. I do agree that Washington D.C. has more to do with it than New York, but look, it's what it is, right? And, and producer Laith wants us to add a bit of breaking news. Yeah. Uh, I knew this was happening today, but it's happening right now. Apparently, yeah. uh, President Vladimir Putin of Russia and Xi Jinping of China oh, are meeting. finally meeting today. This is the first time that they have met face to face. Since uh, the start of Russia's Conflict. military yeah. op- uh, operation in Ukraine, um, so they're we're expecting to see what will come out from there. Could be that uh, what I'm hearing is that she is not happy about the losses of ground and territory. Really? Because he's, you know, tacitly been um, well, somewhat sure. backing Putin. Uh, I mean, they, of, I mean, effectively, that's what it is. From right? Xi Jinping's so, standpoint, or the very least, the way that China has already described it. We don't have any part in this. Right. We are up- However, I get why Vlad is doing this. Yes, exactly. It's been so that. So I'm not going to throw shade on it. And there's like this tacit backing, even like, though it's I, not backing. It's just kind of weird spot. Yeah. But I get why Vladimir Putin's doing this. So I'm not going to throw shade on him. Yeah. So the West, you shouldn't have pushed all this. So yes. we're not going to join you in sanctions. That's basically Putin. Right. Or, but we uh, will take Xi that oil. Yeah. <laughs> we will back um, give me that yeah. discounted oil. We're good. Yeah. That's basically Xi Jinping's policy towards Russia. But because he's somewhat uh, been tacitly backing, tac- it's very tacit, very yeah. slight, but showing that he's not going with the West. And, and by Correct. today's policies, if you don't 
standards, I should say. If you don't back the West, then you're pro-Russia. And so to be fair, he's seen as pro-Russia. Xi Jinping has been getting a little bit more hardcore on this issue of, meaning, it's very weird. They're taking this kind of weird position of, we're not really doing anything even though we are backing Russians. It's just a weird, you know, Right, I just step. want to keep getting this good, these good deals yes. on oil. I just yeah. want good deals. And, and I get that too. But um, from a lot of things that I'm hearing and reading yeah. is that he's not thrilled with the recent... Oh, Kharkov uh, region losing the territory. Kharkov, Izium, because he doesn't want to be seen as backing a, a losing battle, backing a losing objective. But this is not... I mean, I get it. I, I don't know. For me, the Kharkov looks, thing you know, doesn't change the too. context of the war. I mean, it's almost like it's... It seems that Russia was repositioning inner forces regardless. No, no, I get, I get yeah. that, but this is one battle. Yeah. And, and there's much more to come. However, for the Chinese, I'm just saying this They're is like, what... We don't like the fact that you lost this, territory. This is the stuff that I'm looking at. Yeah. That the Chinese are viewing it as, hey, America has positioned us and pushed us into your corner. Right. Whether we truly back you or not, we're being seen by the world, by the West, as backing Russia. Yeah. So don't make us look bad. If Xi Jinping is feeling that way, I think he needs to calm down. He's feeling, <laughs> he's feeling a certain yeah, way. He needs to calm down. Nothing has necessarily changed in the context of this war. But they're calm, right? Xi Jinping, yeah. is, he's a calm, stable hand. Yeah. Love him or hate Steady him. Steady hand on the tiller, as yes. they call it. He's not going to flip out, no. but I'm sure he's going to convey something to that effect. It's like, dude, what happened? <laughs> dude, what happened? Like, bro. Yeah, bro. Cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess we'll look at the stuff sometimes as repositionings and it doesn't necessarily affect the context of the war. We could talk to but, Elijah about this yeah. and see what he thinks as get well. His take. But yeah, the through the grapevines that that's, I'm that's what's coming, through that's what's filtering. Is what up. I understand about um in Asia, that's kind of the the, the sentiment this Interesting. week after the loss of Israel. They don't like the propaganda look for, for that conflict. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Let's keep going. Um, the U.S. passenger railroad service, Amtrak, is canceling long-distance service on Thursday as a threat of a massive strike of railroad unions in the United States looms, Amtrak said in a statement to Sputnik. Quote, while we are hopeful that parties will reach a resolution, Amtrak has now begun phased adjustments to our service in preparation for a possible freight rail interruption later this week. Unquote. Amtrak said late Wednesday night. Quote, for Thursday, September 15th, all Amtrak long-distance trains are canceled. Service updates for Friday, September 16th, will be announced on Thursday, unquote. Wow. Let's keep going. Joe Biden's administration is pressuring Mexico behind closed doors to accept more migrants from three particular nationalities, Reuters reported, citing U.S. and Mexican officials. Furthermore, amid escalating numbers of crossing into the United States by migrants from Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, the White House... Wow. The White House is seeking to have them expelled under COVID-19 health order known as Title 42, according to sources. Now, I want to point this out. Summit of Americas, what states or what countries weren't allowed in the Summit of Americas? Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Meaning the three countries where he's getting the most migrants from are the very countries that Biden didn't allow to come to the Summit of Americas. And you wonder why I pointed out that that thing was a failure. Let's keep going. The U.S. shale industry executives have warned Europe that they will not be able to come to the rescue by boosting oil and gas provisions for the country or the continent in time for winter, the Financial Times reported. Although the vast U.S. oil and natural gas reserves could potentially be used to alleviate Europe's energy crunch, supplies apparently could not be increased quickly enough to avert winter shortages. Quote, it's not like the U.S. can pump a bunch more. Our production is what it is. There's no bailout coming, not on the oil side, not on the gas side, unquote. Will Van Lowe, head of equity, a private equity group, Quantum Energy Partners, one of the U.S. shale industry largest investors, was cited as saying. 
Looks like that's something you should have thought about before jumping off the cliff with the United States and not knowing where you're going to get your gas and energy production from. Are you people idiots? All things being equal, you honestly believed, you honestly believed that you were going to go to war with Russia, where you were going to put all of this money, all of these weapons into killing Russians, but Russians were still going to give you the product necessary to keep your economies and industries running. Why did you believe that? Why did you believe that? And now you're in this kind of weird situation where you're begging the world for oil. Saudi Arabia is cutting the oil production. What are you going to do for winter? How are you going to explain this to your populations when you're not going to be able to take warm showers? Or for that matter, the temper thermostat is going to be cut that much lower. And that's assuming, especially if you're in the UK, that you can afford the energy at all. This is where you are. Fair enough. Let's keep going. On California Wednesday, the state of California sued the company Amazon the world's largest retailer and cloud service provider alleging they're monopolizing their market and inflating prices by creating restrictive deals with their sellers. The state accuses Amazon of making Californians pay more than they should for their products. Quote, for years, California consumers have paid more for their online purchases because Amazon's anti-competitive contracting practices, unquote, competitive contracting practices. California Attorney General Rob Bonta said in a statement, quote, Amazon coerces merchants into agreements that keep prices artificially high, knowing full well they cannot afford to say no, unquote. That's called capitalism. Let's keep going. The U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Wednesday advanced the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022 that will provide the island with $4.5 billion in security aid and $2 billion loan guarantee authority for the purchase of military equipment. The lawmakers passed the bill, moving it for consideration by the full Senate, according to the statement by Foreign Relations Committee member John Reich. Quote, we must get ahead of a future crisis and give Xi Jinping reasons to think twice about invading or coercing Taiwan. I hope the full Senate will vote under legislation soon, unquote, the statement said. So you honestly believe that given a Taiwan overpriced weapons, that they're going to be able to fend off China, a nuclear powered nation, if China decides to take Taiwan. Okay, fair enough. Let's keep going. Armenia demonstrations have blocked Marshal, I think this is Bag- Bagraman, on prospect in central Yerevan near the parliament building on Wednesday, calling for the prime minister Nicole Pashtian to resign. Earlier in the day, Pashtian told the parliament he was ready to make tough decisions and sign documents necessary for long lasting peace in Armenia, though other measures, including declaring martial law were, quote, also on the table, unquote. Protesters took to the streets later on Wednesday saying Pashtian was ready to make concessions to Azerbaijan and calling on more people to demonstrate. Yes. We're going to talk about that later today also. Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and China signed an agreement on construction of a railroad or railway between the countries. Kyrgyz leader Sadir Saprojev press service told Sputnik, quote, in Samarkand, or the Republic of Uzbekistan, on the sidelines of the summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, an agreement was signed between Kyrgyz Republic Transport and Communications Ministry, the Transport Ministry of the Republic of Uzbekistan, the National Development and Reform Commission of the People's Republic of China, on cooperation of a draft to build a China-Kyrgyzstan-Uzbekistan railroad. Interesting. Let's keep going. On Wednesday, two banks were robbed in Lebanon by customers who wanted access to their own money. In the first case, a woman and a few associates entered Bloom Bank on capital city of Beirut, brandishing a gun. She left with 13,000 of money 
from her own bank account, according to Depositors Advocacy Group. And this is via Reuters. A short time later, also on Wednesday, a man in the mountain city of L.A. entered a bank branch armed with a gun and demanded some of the money trapped in his savings account. Last month, a different man held up the bank in Beirut to access funds to pay for treatment for a sick father. The man took six hostages until he was able to access roughly $30,000 of $200,000 locked in his own account. That is amazing. In tech news, the Norwegian government has allowed the country's intelligence services to test surveillance systems that can capture large amounts of information about Norwegian citizens. The intelligence service is meant to monitor threats against Norway from abroad. It is not allowed to monitor Norwegian citizens within the country's borders. However, the new system will make it possible to capture large amounts of data about Norwegian citizens as well, national broadcaster NRK reported. Earlier this summer, the National Defense Ministry sent out a proposal for changes to the new Intelligence Act with features what has been referred to as, quote, facilitated collection, unquote, and would allow an intelligence service to collect and store mass data communications. The law has not yet been introduced because, among other things, their concerns it may violate Norway's human rights obligations. We have this in the United States, by the way. And on, despite the fact that it's not supposed to surveil U.S. citizens, there is processes called things like unmasking, where you could say, hey, who did this person talk to? In which case you can get information about the citizens without necessarily breaching, quote-unquote, the provisions of that law. Good luck, Norway. It seems like you're going to be in the same situation. This day in history, in 1588, the Invincible Armada, sent by Catholic King Philip II of Spain to overthrow Prince Protestant Queen Elizabeth I of England, is defeated in the English Channel. I love that. I love it when we name things the Invincible Armada, and it gets defeated. In 1916, World War I, tanks were used for the first time in battle at the Battle of Somme. In 1959, Nikit Khrushchev Oh, Nikita Khrushchev becomes the first Soviet leader to visit the United States. In 1967, the U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson, responding to a sniper attack at the University of Texas at Austin, writes a letter to Congress urging the enactment of gun control legislation. In 2008, Lehman Brothers files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, the largest bankruptcy filing in U.S. history, which kicked off the financial crisis back that year. Those are your headlines. You're listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Manila Chan. All right, let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. We're going to come back with Elijah Mangay. We're going to have this conversation about what is taking place in Europe, especially on this notion of energy production and in the meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.5 FM and 102.9 FM, I'm sorry, and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Smashing that rumble button. And smashing that rumble button. Thank you very much. And we'll be taking your calls at 945, um, usually, if we get the opportunity to do so. But I want to get into what is taking place in Europe. So Europe, EU proposes energy measures as Russia's war tests (laughs) Europe. Uh, That's what the screaming headline in Washington Post is basically making out. And basically... Right here, the commission proposal, which must still be approved by member states, 
says the EU should tax the profits of non-gas power or producers when they sell above a certain price point and requires fossil fuel companies to pay a solidarity, <laughs> solidarity contribution from their 2022 earnings. Vonderland said the measures could offer roughly $140 billion to cushion consumers. They also call for mandatory targets of at least 5% reduction and gross energy consumption during peak hours, covering at least 10% of the hours each month where prices are expected to be the highest. Now, of course, this is cast as this is Vladimir Putin's energy war. But I kind of want to point out that it was Europe, the ones that decided we're going to have an economic war. We're going to destroy the Russian economy, etc. As if they were just going to stand there and allow you to destroy their economy without taking any action well, at all. It's, also, it's not like Vladimir Putin was like, hey, I'm going to stop selling you my product. That never happened, right? He never said that. Nobody, the Russians never wanted, they wanted to turn on Nord Stream 2. Yes. They never wanted any problems in terms of like business energy, dealings. And they kept the energy production going even when the war started. And they were like, we'll, we'll give it to you. You need, you need natural gas? We'll give it to you. Europe was the one who said, we're going to have sanctions on energy. We're going to have sanctions on everything else with the exception of gas. We're going to have sanctions on everything at gas. And I, I kept saying to this, I was like, so let me get this straight. You guys are going to basically sanction everything with the exception of gas because you need gas. Why do you think that Russia is not going to do anything to gas? And they'd be like, okay, well, fine. Pay us some rubles. Oh, oh, oh. They were hyperventilating about that. Eventually, they came around to paying with rubles. But, but, I mean, I guess my point but, is but, they started this war. They were the right. ones who wanted to basically destroy their Russian economy and we're going to sanction oil and we're going to sanction this and we're going to sanction that. Well, and now they're in the situation of where they're basically saying, quote, this is not only a war at least by Russia against Ukraine, she said. This is a war on our energy, a war on our economy, a war on our values, and a war on our future. Well, you know, the, the Russians being the seller, they're like, fine, this market doesn't want to buy it. Okay, we have I'm, I'm going to turn east. Yeah. And that's where he's at now. Vladimir Putin is meeting right now, this very moment, is as we speak, with Xi Jinping in Uzbekistan along um, a town, Samarkand, yeah. um, which is part of the old Silk Road. Mm -hmm. And we know that the Chinese are, with their new Belt and Road Initiative, are re basically making it the 21st century new yes. Silk Road. Um, and and it's all of these countries are jumping everywhere. on board. Yes. Yeah. All these, so countries the, all these countries are going to need Russian oil, Russian gas. And they are buyers, right? I mean, India, China, all of these places started buying those um, gas up. There's been no deviation from the standpoint of Saudi Arabia, meaning the relationships are still there. Saudi Arabia, Iran, all of these countries are talking about getting into BRICS. Like, you're getting almost like a reorganization of the world economy while Europe is basically taking a hit and their industrial production is going down. Well, it's very they're, weird. They're turning, they're turning to the east. East, correct. So, you know, it's like it's, we have buyers. The unipolar Western world is, is crumbling before our very eyes yeah. and the leadership is to blame. And by the way, they did it. Like they jumped the shark on this. Sounds like we got Elijah back on. Oh, Elijah. Excellent. We're going to go to our guests. We have Elijah Mangier. He's a veteran war correspondent. You can find his reporting on Elijah JM, that WordPress. Elijah, welcome to the show, my man. How you doing this morning? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I want to get into the energy issue for Europe. Um, as I was kind of making the point, Eric um, Vonderland basically on Wednesday, she says, quote, this is not a war unleashed by Russia against Ukraine. She said this is a war on our energy, a war on our economy, a war on our values and a war on our future. She said Russia is actively manipulating the bloc's energy market to the point that it is no longer functioning. But Europe is fighting back. Well. 
I mean, is Europe fighting back? I mean, we kind of pointed out that it was Europe the one that passed sanctions on energy. Um, it wasn't Russia that did that. And they were the ones who didn't necessarily have any kind of, let's say, fallback position where they were going to be able to get that energy from somewhere else. And yet they tied themselves to the U.S. and jumped off of a cliff without having any idea, hey, where are we going to get the energy from at the point where we sanction energy? And so now they're in this kind of weird situation where their industrial production is going down. Britain's bills are going through the roof where they don't necessarily know how they're going to be able to afford energy, even if the energy is available. They're talking about cuts, I think, at 1.15 percent where they wanted all of these nations or European nations to cut energy by 15 percent. And that still doesn't seem like it's going to be adequate and enough. What is the energy situation in Europe right now? And what are they planning for the winter? Because they don't have the oil reserves necessary to cover themselves for the winter. Well, first of all, I would like to start with one particular detail that we have never heard Ursula von der Leyen speaking about the value of our values in Europe during the uh, U.S. war on Iraq during the use of U.S. depleted uranium against Iraqi cities and with the participation of Europe in the battle, mainly the U.K., and we haven't heard anything about how the uh, NATO forces behaved with the inhabitants of Afghanistan for 20 years. So we don't hear about the European values only when it is in the favor of the warmongers like Ursula von der Leyen and uh, uh, the Americans who are carrying out uh, as a full support uh, in, of NATO in a war against Russia in Ukraine. Secondly, the European Union energy minister last week failed to set the cap on the price of energy because they were afraid of the collapse of the unity of Europe. Uh, and there are very serious division among the European states. So the disagreement of European nation leaders came as a blessing for us as a population of the 27 member states, because we are uh, suffering from the consequences of the European leaders' decision. Once the oil price is increased, the gas price is increased, and they're telling us that we need to uh, restrict the use of gas, and maybe we are going to suffer daily. But then at the end of the day, they're not telling us that they are taking these measures due to Europe's loyalty to the United States of America that uh, is incompatible with the European citizens' interest. So today, European uh, citizens are under very heavy weight of the high-priced commodity, food, energy, and that is, has been going on since several months. It's not new. So we have even uh, Secretary Blinken saying that the Europeans' allies are going to pay a very heavy price to stand by us in their sanctions against Russia. So they're not hiding it. They're telling us. And they're also telling us that the Americans are selling the gas at 40% more than what we used to buy from Russia. And what the Americans are providing us covers only 10% of 155 billion cubic meters of gas that we need yearly. They're also telling us they are trying to help us to get more gas from Azerbaijan, from Kazakhstan, from Qatar, from Algeria, from all over the world, trying to beg for a bit of more gas only because they have the Americans from Washington declared that Nord Stream 2 
is suspended, never used, but it has been suspended. Even it is something that has been built between Russia and Germany to supply Europe. And also they told us that they're not going to buy more oil and gas from the Russian. And by the 5th of December, they're even going to stop the supply of oil from Russia. So on the other hand, they're telling us that we need the deal with Iran because Iran can jump in and supply us with 2.5 million barrels per day. This is what the Russians are supplying Europe with today. However, they're saying that we can't do anything because it is up to the Americans to decide to return to the JCPOA, i.e. the nuclear deal uh, with Iran. Uh, so at the end of the day, what we do is we wait for the decision of the Americans to uh, try and soften the sanctions uh, and allow us to come out of the vicious circus that we put ourselves in. So this week, Ursula von der Leyen is proposing a new plan that is supposed to keep you the unity within Europe because Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Germany oppose the idea of capping the price of Russian gas. And they're saying that we can't be independent uh, from the Russian supply of fuel and gas. And we are not optimistic about the decision of the European Council. Therefore, it is not going to happen and is not going to bring Europe together under one decision. So uh, the, the um, more sanctions are coming in December the 5th, and this is what Europe is still not ready for. So we're talking about a few months down the line, and then we're going to receive another hit in Europe by our own hands from imposing sanctions on the Russian energy that we are not ready to find an alternative. But Elijah, how are they justifying this? I mean, look, it's one thing to have feelings about stuff. It's like, oh, we feel strongly about this. But it's another thing to deal with the practical realities of, hey, we don't have energy already, meaning we're not going to have the supply necessary for the wintertime. And yet, we're still going to take additional action to limit the amount of energy that we have on hand. That's astonishing that they're like, that she can, that they would even say that. They don't have to necessarily give a plan for what they plan to do for the various countries that aren't going to have the energy necessary to heat their homes or for that matter, to keep their ind industries going? Like, you would think that they would just need a hardcore plan to be able to say, okay, this is what we're going to do to get us through this. That doesn't seem to be the case. Yes, sorry. i tell you what's the plan. The plan is very obvious and was stated by the German foreign minister who said, yes, you're going to go in the street and demonstrate that you are suffering. And I, can, I tell you what is the plan. The plan is I answer, we hear you, and we're going to try and support you socially. And this is what Italy started by providing 200 euros for every citizen who has a company who is working and uh, uh, paid the taxes. And those who are not paying the taxes and are not working and are jobless are not going to benefit from 200 euros. Now, 200 euros in social benefit, this is ridiculous because the difference of uh, price of the gas bill is huge. Right. The difference of price of food we are paying is humongous. So that there's nothing can cover that. And what is covering is it covering their failure in deciding that we as a Western elite in power consider we are in a state of war and we are mobilizing our society on this basis because the victory in Ukraine is the beginning of another win for us. And the high cost of this war 
for the West and the cooperation we are offering to the United States against its war against Russia, they are expecting it to end, they expect it to end in the first month. So now we have more than 200 days and we have more and more measures are taking on both sides and the population is paying the price. There is no a plan B. Nobody thought about a plan B because as rightly the prime minister of Hungary said, they told us we're going to win. They told us Putin will be removed. They told us the Russian will not accept this war. And they told us that we're going to feed the Russian army within a month. And all that is not happening. All of that was wrong. <laughs> all of that was wrong. Like across the board, all of that was wrong. In this meeting between Russia and Xi Jinping, let's get into that for a moment. Um, Manila is kind of making the point, And even in the thing, it says that, um, Putin recognizes that Xi Jinping had concerns about what has taken place, um, but for the most part, China has taken this kind of well, balanced position add, on the conflict. Let me add a couple of things here from Reuters. They've just made a couple bullet points of what so far, what's transpired out of this ongoing meeting. Uh, this is Xi's first trip since COVID, um, traveling outside of his country because they're in uh, Uzbekistan uh, at the old Silk, one of the old Silk Road towns, Samarkand. Uh, Putin has so far praised President Xi for what he calls his balanced position on Ukraine. Um, Putin then scolding the U.S. for provocations on Taiwan. And Xi and Putin are both discussing the main topics on the table are Ukraine and Taiwan. So they're obviously supporting one another on this, whether it's tacit or in in Putin's case, it's overt backing um, with the U.S. provocations on Taiwan. Uh, This, Elijah, sounds like for the West, this could spell really big trouble if Russia and China strengthen ties because they're, you know, whether it's a marriage of convenience or not, these two countries, people think they've, oh, they're they're friends, oh, they're commies. And, you know, people think that, but it's actually not true because historically the Chinese and the Russians have been at war many times because they share such a big land border. Um, But right now, they, the West has basically alienated two super, the other two superpowers in the world. I mean, isn't this kind of a, a marriage nightmare for all those in the West? Well, we have to understand that the Shanghai Cooperation that was created under Russia and China already gives the lead that is Russia and China. Now, China is not a strategic ally for Russia like NATO is for the United States. However, China is supportive of Russia from the first day when China said to the Americans, we have to understand and remember why the war in Ukraine has started by pointing the finger to the Americans who started the war. That is already a position China is taking next to Russia, but not to support Russia. To say to the Americans, stop fiddling with the world security and provoking other countries into a war. Now, we have two two points that uh, came up this week. The first ridiculous point, and it made me laugh so much, is how the Europeans and the Americans are thinking to start imposing sanctions on China. It's like not shooting yourself in the foot, but in the head and all over your body. You can't impose Uh, sanctions on China, you are saying to China, 
go 100% with Russia and start joining all your military and economic effort against the West. Now, the Americans can print dollars and they can pretend to be a very rich country. And the richness, it belongs to an elite in America, not to everybody. The majority of the population is not rich, which is exactly the case in China. China is a very rich country, but not every individual is a rich in, uh, person. So we can't say that China cannot compete and stand to the Americans if they want to start a war through Taiwan or they want to create another war to divert the attention on Ukraine or they fail, the failure of the U.S. policy domestically. Also, uh, when China said to the Russian, and that's an information I know, that they're not going to deliver Russia weapons because they want not to be in the, uh, indicated as the part, direct participant to the war. However, they support Russia at the United Nations. They support Russia financially because they have a common use of the, the currency of each country when they deal uh, with each other in trade and commerce and energy. Russia is selling its oil and gas to uh, China and is building the Mongolian line from Russia to China to supply uh, Russia with energy, with, uh, sorry, to China with energy. And China is an industrial country. It's a huge continent and it will it definitely replace Europe that is without energy and is an industrial continent, but it's suffering from the energy and from inflation, which is not the case of China. So Russia and China are together. They're not strategic allies, but they are allies. They stand against the common enemy. It's not only United States, but any country who trying to provoke a war in their countries or try to dry their resources and try to make them focus on something uh, other, uh, other than rebuilding their economy. This is why China feeds the threat from the United States that is calling Taiwan as part of China, yet is, is sending for $1.1 billion weapon to Taiwan that is interfering in the Taiwan affairs. And that's really provoking China to a war by sending, uh, the by seeing so many uh, U.S. officials visiting Taiwan and expressing their solidarity against Russia when they are saying Taiwan is China. So all this is pushing the Chinese and the rest of the world to look and say, well, it's obviously that the U.S. is triggering another war and uh, trying to survive through wars. That is usual behavior of the Americans. Elijah, explain this to me, because it seems, it seems warped to me. Um, the country gets into, let's say, a conflict, world-scale conflict in Ukraine. Um, the rest of the European powers or the Western powers basically come together in order to pass sanctions. Those sanctions backfire. And it is clear as day. I mean, you can see the political consequences and you can see the economic consequences that's hitting not just the United States with inflation and everything else, but you can also see it in Europe. To start a conflict with China, where they're basically, Europe is saying, now we're going to pass sanctions on China. And there was reports that Taiwan was basically lobbying for those sanctions in the United States and in Europe to go against China. This seems so off the reservation to me that the countries are already taking a hit where they don't necessarily know where they're going to get the energy production from going into the winter and yet starting something else with China. My thought was that there are 
they've jumped the shark, that they feel this kind of Western hegemony slipping away, and that their response to this is not necessarily a rational response of negotiation and trying to come up to some kind of terms for a new world order, but their terms are, we're going to just take a hard approach and we're going to take a hard line against China and Russia and the kind of this new organization of the world that seems to be organizing around BRIC nations. What is your take on this? I mean, how do you explain what seems to be loony policy at this point, or at the very least wishful thinking um, in regards to policy, as opposed to this kind of hard nose, what do we need to do to get out of this particular situation that we find ourselves? Is it just that they feel the hegemony slipping away and that they're responding poorly to it? Or is there something else going on that we're just fundamentally missing? It's a very good question. So the Americans feel that there is a real challenge to their hegemony which is the case in the case of Russia and in the case of China. Now, to defeat China and make sure that China is not going to stand against the U.S., because that will be extremely painful to the rest of the world and to the U.S. and China, of course, it is to tell China that you are without your Russian arms and you don't have the the supporter and the ally that can stand by you in case we attack you. So. The Americans are on the attack and on the defense. In order to defend their hegemony, they need to attack. They dragged Russia into the war in Ukraine, and that most of the reasonable people around the world looking at the history of how the Americans dealt with Ukraine and how they attracted the Soviet Union into Afghanistan in 1979, and they attracted Russia into Ukraine in 2020 when Russia had no choice but to stop Ukraine from being part of NATO. We understand that the Americans are afraid of the Russian power. And during the 2015-2016, the war in Syria, when Russia jumped in in September 2015, the Americans started to tremble because they said, well, we expected Russia to rise in 2025, so we had time to burn the ground around it before it becomes more powerful. So inevitably, the Americans are defending their throne. They're defending their position in the world, and they want to continue dominating the world. And to dominate the world, they need to eliminate all the opponents. And the main two opponents today, they can drag many other countries behind them. So I just mentioned India, which is a very good U.S. ally, is a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and it's leading it next uh, on the next chair. So you have big country like India, like Pakistan, like Brazil, like uh, South Africa, like Iran, who are on the same line as the Chinese and the Russian. If Russia is defeated in Ukraine, which is unlikely is going to happen, but that is the wishful thinking of the Americans and the Europeans who choose their camp, then China, it will be very difficult for China to stand against the U.S. But if Russia comes out uh, reaching its objectives in Ukraine and standing against NATO, because the war today is really naive, the person who would think that the war is between Russia and Ukraine. The war is between Russia and U.S. and NATO on the Ukrainian soil. And the Americans are admitting it. We, We had yesterday and the day before the Pentagon and CIA saying we are directing the battle of uh, Kharkov. 
Therefore, they are the one in Germany who are directing the battle. So in this case, we understand that the Americans are engaged in a battle against Russian, and the turn of China will come next unless China submits if Russia loses the war. So at the end of the day, the Americans are defending their interests. They renew their grab on Europe because of China uh, rising economy and military power. They uh, hold NATO together when the French president said uh, NATO is a dead brain, which is exactly the case, uh, because they said, okay, now all the Europeans are pretending that they are in danger and that their value, suddenly they woke up on their value and they are in danger. So they, the Americans succeeded in creating this solidarity against Russia, but in, in reality is against China because China is more um, of a threat to the American economy, but not military, than Russia. Russia had uh, thousands of nuclear weapons. China has 700, but nobody's nuclear and using nuclear weapons these days, at the exception of the Americans, of course, uh, during the Second World War against um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. But today we see that the war is on two fronts. The Americans are carrying a multiple front against Russia and sending their arrows from time to time, poison arrows to China. That is the case. It's just shocking, that's all. Because it doesn't necessarily seem like it's a situation that, meaning it's one thing if you get in a situation where you're going to win. This doesn't seem like a situation where the West is winning. And it seems to be obvious and clear that they're not necessarily winning this conflict. And yet... They seem to still continue to just try to bog the country down into this kind of war. Um, I do want to transfer into something else that's taking place that's fascinating to me. Azerbaijan and Armenia, the conflict is basically flared up. Um, now, initially, there was this conflict over Nagar- Nagorno-Karabakh um, that Armenia lost pretty straightforwardly, actually. And there were Russian peacekeepers that were basically on the ground in order to keep the peace in the region. Well, it seems to have flared up with um, attacks between the two with a large number of people who are basically losing their lives. Now, the reporting comes out that Armenia is saying that there was some kind of negotiated peace. I don't necessarily see anything coming out of Azerbaijan saying so. Why is this conflict flaring up again? I mean, I, I'm, Nicole Pashtian, initially the first time around, was pretty provocative in the things that he was saying, but ultimately lost that war, lost it straightforwardly. Is Azerbaijan taking the opportunity down that Russia is basically preoccupied in Ukraine? Or is there something else going on between the two countries? Can you give us kind of a summary of what's happening um, between this conflict, between these two countries? Now, the problem of Nagorno-Karabakh and the Armenia, the Azerbaijan, goes back to 1994. And then we have the renew of the clashes and the uh, military operation in 2020. Right and the intervention of Iran and Russia, and mainly Russia, to stop this conflict. As you rightly said, there are 2,000 Russian peacekeeping forces uh, to stop the hostility between the two countries. Now, the problem here is who is who in, in whose interest the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia? Certainly not Russia, not Iran, and in a, in a lesser degree, not Europe, because Europe is uh, now trying to get this gas and uh, energy from oil Azerbaijan. from Azerbaijan. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we understand that the uh, Azeri wants the mainly inhabited, inhabited area of Nagorno-Karabakh by the Armenians, 
However, this is also a way in the advantage of Turkey because it closes the road on Iran and it's opened up the line between Azerbaijan, Turkey and Europe if the uh, Azeri managed to take the area of Nagorno-Karabakh and this is why the Russians are there to prevent the change of the geopolitical situation in between two countries that will be extremely severe consequences on Iran because having two countries fighting each other in this way over an area that create a passage because there is a part of the Azerbaijan on the border with Turkey and Iran, of course, and uh, this part is divided by a very small uh, road that allow the uh, uh, Iranian to cross from Iran into Armenia into Azerbaijan. If that is closed, then Azerbaijan will have access to Turkey directly. Azerbaijan now doesn't have access to the Turkish border, so it needs to go through Armenia or through Iran. That's one. Two. The animosity between the two countries is so high that just a ceasefire on cessation of hostility is not going to help. What is important is to sit around the table and draw the uh, borderline, and that both sides are not ready to do so. Now, uh, Russia interfered in this conflict, and today and yesterday, the president uh, uh, Putin is the one who was behind this uh, ceasefire between the two countries, meeting with the Armenian uh, responsible in uh, Shanghai, in Samarkand, in the Shanghai Cooperation Summit. And um, the conflict is really uh, going to create a critical situation, mainly for Iran and for Russia. And this is not something that both countries would like to see However, it is in the advantage of Turkey that is supplying the Azeri with a lot of drones that are really very effective in the war against the Armenian. Right. And because the last time around, if I remember correctly, the Turks were extremely helpful, um, like you said, in drones, weapons and so forth in order to kind of win that conflict. I mean, but considering that the conflict was so one sided, it was shocking that the conflict resumed. I guess for me, I was it was more. Let me ask you this. You made the point of saying that it's not necessarily in the interest of Russia and Iran for this conflict to keep going. Are the Azerbaijanis looking at this as an opportunity to basically get more territory and more land? And in their minds, nobody is going to stop them from doing it, meaning the West is not going to get involved because, like you say, they needed the oil. And from the standpoint of Turkey, well, Turkey has benefits from having that land bridge created where you basically, Azerbaijan and Turkey can basically have, or Turkey, as they're now called, um, can have access to one another. What I guess my thing is, what is the reason for this to take off in the way that it has? Is there something else pushing the conflict? Well, we have contradictory information coming up from the area. So we have the Azerbaijan accusing Armenia. And Armenia has a military alliance with Moscow and has many Russian military bases. On the other hand, we have the Azerbaijani foreign minister meeting with the U.S. State Department for the Caucasian uh, the uh, Caucasian Affairs, Philip Rika, telling Armenia that must withdraw from the Azari territory. So the Americans are not saying what, yes, Antony Blinken said that uh, Russia accused Russia of uh, being behind it, but it is completely counterproductive for Russia to see these two countries fighting now. So 
it is not the time to create a demarcation line between the two countries and creating really draw line the territory limit because both sides are very hot-headed today and the Russians don't want another conflict because they're very focused on what is happening in Ukraine because it's uh, carrying out a huge war, not against Ukrainian, as we uh, previously said. So we have attempts from the West to say, yes, a war in the Russian courtyard could be uh, useful because it diverts the Russian attention and it creates serious uh, consequences on Russia by seeing Azerbaijan and Armenia fighting together. Although everybody knows that this fight is going to stop sooner or later, even if uh, uh, a ceasefire has been reached, and they will resume again at a certain point down the line and then stop again until a final solution is found. So the problem is we have majority Armenian living in an area controlled by Azerbaijan, and the Armenian claiming their um, sovereignty over the area and Azerbaijan saying that the Armenians uh, uh, took by force a piece of land that used to belong to Azerbaijan. And this is endless. Basically, this is going to keep going. This this conflict is not going to end anytime soon. Basically, the hostilities are just going to keep manifesting. Yes, exactly. Wow. It, it, man, that's unfortunate. Like I said, I remember when this conflict first took off um, a year or so ago. And how one-sided it was. And my thought at the time was, okay, Armenia lost this conflict. This is the end of that. And I didn't think Nikol Pashtian would be able to stay in power over this situation. But yet, he was still able to retain power. Is there going to be a change in leadership with the conflicts keep flaring like this, especially if it's a situation where it doesn't seem like Armenia can maintain its borders? Well, there are many calls from Armenia to remove the prime minister. Because of the last conflict in 2020, people believe that he is the one who ordered the ceasefire and forced it. They just can't understand that he is the one who saved thousands of uh, soldiers that were encircled and about to be massacred by the Azer uh, uh, Azerbaijani. So today there are voices in Armenia calling for the change of leadership, uh, but not in Azerbaijan because they consider the president is the one who is uh, powerful, stronger, managed to recover some territory and stand with the uh, European now, with Turkey and with Europe, and is managing quite well for his citizens. Uh, on the other hand, Armenia has lost part of the territory, and they think that it is all the fault of the prime minister. They tried to remove him, but he won the elections again. Wow, that's super interesting. Elijah, one more question on the energy production from the standpoint of Azerbaijan. We're out of time. Oh, we're out of time. Okay, fair enough. Elijah, thank you very much. Elijah Magnea is a veteran war correspondent. You can find his reporting on ElijahJM.wordpress.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at EJMALRAI and find his reporting on his work. Website, of course, ElijahJM.wordpress.com. Thank you, Elijah. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. 
in the left corner. I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Always love talking to Elijah. I mean, there, I, there are some people on this show that I can sit here and talk to hours, and Elijah was one of those people. Like you could pick his brain about anything. Anything. I mean, the guy's been a war correspondent all across the world, and that by itself I am enamored with. Like, I, I, am, I am a sucker for war correspondents. Just the idea, like, that Chris, you know, we always talk about like Chris Hedges. Like Malcolm Nance? Well, not like Malcolm Nance. I don't want a guy who's sitting there with no bullets in his gun <laughs> hanging out, hugging the border of Poland, talking about he's on the war and I think of it. Hanging no. out at the Cheesecake Factory. Yeah. It's like he's eating, eating hot dogs. He's like, Nance, Nance, we're on. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Just put my donut down. No, not that. I'm talking about guys who's like in the thick of it where their lives are on the line, where they're out there reporting. This is what's taking place on the ground. I'm fascinated by those people. And even this question about what on earth are these guys thinking? Like, yeah, like, what are you thinking going out there? I mean, what? when I was young, I wanted to do that. But then after 30, I was like, yeah. Especially I, after I, having a kid. You know, it's like, yeah, maybe oh, that's not the no best now. idea. Yeah. But after 30, I, that, I guess that part of your brain develops and yeah. you're like, mm, that's not safe. I, I could die. Yeah. So, you know, big props but to people that can do that. But that's the rub. That makes it exciting. I know. I mean, the, the fact that like. But it's like, which one's the greater which outweighs what, right? Like the, the fear of dying or the thrill of maybe dying? To me, it's the thrill. Oh. I, I, like, I've lived my life on the like on the rims. Your poor mama. Yeah, she's had to deal mama with Mama Thomas calling I'm, in. I'm the one that developed kidney failure, and the moment that the kidney failure or the transplant thing, I went on a trip across the world. That's crazy. Like, in her head, Your she's poor like, mother. That's, yeah, she's like, that's my kid. But for her, she my had baby? this belief he's not going to die, he'll be okay. Oh. And that's. That's what you got to believe well, you sometimes. You just got to get used to, you know. Yeah. If, if that's the kid that you got. That's the kid that you got. That's the kid you got. I mean, I looked at it. I'm going to live forever. And you go from there. If I'm wrong on it, then I'm wrong on it. It's that. That's the way you function. And I would imagine if you're a war correspondent, you have to think of it in the same way. Yes, right. I could die. I could get injured. But that's Elijah's not in mother, your head. Poor Elijah's mother. Yeah. Poor Elijah's mom. Like, she, he's in all like, those oh, war zones, Syria, Lebanon, et cetera, et cetera. Uh. You just deal. No, it's fascinating. The question to Elijah on this notion of kind of what on earth are the geopolitical strategists thinking, creating a conflict on multiple fronts? It's one thing if you're winning that conflict. It's another thing when you're looking at this conflict. Like, like, like if Elijah, you're losing a fight. Yeah. You're like a school kid. And it's like you're doubling down. It's like the bully who doesn't necessarily want to realize that there are other people who are bigger than the bully now. That he can't You're necessarily insert. on everybody. Yeah. It's like, dude, at a certain point, all of these kids are going to surround you. Right. If you're the one big bully for, like, all the years and you finally get to high school and you've been picking on, you know, Billy and Joey. Yeah. And Billy and Joey Bobby. gets bigger. Right. And then you Bobby get to high friends. school. You get to high school and you're like, I don't care. I'm going to keep picking on them like I did in, in fifth grade. It doesn't work that way. And the- suddenly, Billy, Bobby, and Joey all gang up on yeah, you. Yeah. The world changed. And it's like, it's almost as if the person who had that level of authority and it could exert that much force didn't fully recognize that the world changed. It's a jump of the shark. Charles Johnson talks about this when he's talking about the Suez Canal and how the Brits realize, oh, we're no longer masters of the world by jumping the shark and going too far. And I get the feeling that the West, that's this moment where you get this issue in Ukraine that ends up not just being about Ukraine, but world order and how the world order is organized going forward. I kind of looked at Queen Elizabeth's death as symbolic of that. So did I. It's like, it's like, all right, the old guard. I'm done. The old guard. Yeah. Like, it's just the way things were in her era. Yeah. And now we're in a new era. It fell apart. 
There's a picture. It's not bad anymore. There's a picture that a friend of mine was showing me of uh, Queen Elizabeth, and it was like the storm clouds gathering. The picture was epic, by the oh, way. It's a real picture. It's like a real not, picture. Not altered. She well, it may be altered, but she's standing there. She's still old, but she, there's this level of um, love of what is like pomp and circumstance around her when she's like standing there and it's like these dark storm clouds in the background and it's almost like yeah the picture is iconic it's almost like the world order changing and her death almost some way is symbolizing this changeover in a way even tony blair symbolic war criminal tony blair even recognizes it and yet they keep pushing in this direction where it is injuring the western economies and they don't necessarily seem to stop and now they're like yeah we need sanctions on china now are you insane? Like, what are you doing? Where's You made this point about what this issue about dialogue and how dialogue has basically fallen apart with that no longer takes place. It's We're going to dictate no, we're, terms. We're at sanction first. Yeah. Talk maybe never. Yeah. But and with, it's unfortunate. On that, let's head over to that breaking news. Uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping right now meeting for the first time since the beginning of the special military operation in Ukraine. This is the first time that Xi Jinping has left China since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, They are meeting in Uzbekistan in Samarkand, a a province that's part of the old Silk Road. President, uh, more breaking news, President Biden and the White House, they have also reached a tentative deal to avoid a national rail strike after 20 hours of talks between union leadership and rail company negotiators. Uh, This is all being hosted by Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. So far, we know that the deal offers union members an immediate 14% raise with back pay going back to 2020, raises totaling 24% over a five-year contract. That's going to run, again, backdating from 2020 up to 2024. It'll give them cash bonuses of 1000 bucks a year. Still more details are to be uh, unveiled if they don't really agree to a deal. As early as midnight, some call it tonight, some will say it's Friday morning, but midnight, uh, there could be a national rail strike across this country the first time uh, since I believe the late 90s. Then some more domestic news. The state of Texas will continue to send undocumented migrants to sanctuary cities throughout the U.S. until President Biden takes appropriate action to secure the U.S. southern border, says Governor Greg Abbott. Quote, we will continue busing migrants until Biden secures the border. Abbott emphasized that mayors of these so-called sanctuary cities in the U.S. are complaining that they're now overwhelmed by several dozen migrants arriving from buses on from Texas. But, you know, Texas says that's only a fraction of what we have to deal with every single day. On top of that, uh, just this morning, just as we were getting on air at about 6.30 a.m. local time, Fox News reported that Greg Abbott sent two busloads of migrants to be dropped off right in front directly in front of Vice President Kamala Harris's residence. So there are two busloads of migrants in front of the Vice President's house right now with no place to go. Uh, That is probably one of the boldest measures I've seen Greg Abbott take so far uh, in the context of busing migrants. Uh, That's obviously sending a message to her because she's supposed to be the border and immigration czar. um, And that's sending a message. Vice President 
Madam Vice President, you have to do something about this. It's literally at your doorstep. Then, as we said, U.S. passenger railroad service, uh, at least for Amtrak, is canceling all their long-distance service today because the threat of the rail strike by the unions uh, may still happen. Now, in a statement to Sputnik News, they said, Amtrak said, while we are hopeful that parties will reach a resolution, Amtrak has now begun phased adjustments to our service in preparation for a possible freight rail service interruption later this week. For Thursday, September 15, all Amtrak long-distance trains are canceled. Service updates for Friday, September 16 will be announced later Thursday. Then Biden, Biden's administration is pressuring Mexico, at least behind closed doors, to accept more migrants from three particular countries, according to Reuters. Amid escalating numbers of crossings into the U.S., migrants from Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, uh, that's who he's allegedly talking to the Mexican officials about, seeking to have them expelled under the COVID-19 health order better known as Title 42. That's according to unnamed sources talking to Reuters. Then the U.S. shale industry executives have warned Europe that they will not be able to come to their rescue by boosting oil and gas provisions for the entire continent in time for winter, says the Financial Times. Although the vast U.S. oil and nat gas reserves could potentially be used to alleviate some of Europe's energy crunch, supplies apparently cannot be increased quickly enough to avert shortages this winter. Quote, It's not like the U.S. can pump a bunch more. Our production is what it is. There's no bailout coming, not on the oil side, not on the gas side, says Will Van Lowe, the head of a private equity group called Quantum Energy Partners, one of the U.S. shale industry's largest investors. Then on Wednesday, the state of California suing Amazon, the world's largest retailer and cloud service provider, alleging that Amazon is monopolizing their market and inflating prices by creating restrictive deals with their sellers. The state accusing Amazon of making Californians pay more than they should for their products. Quote, for years, California consumers have paid more for their online purchases because of Amazon's anti-competitive contracting practices. That's coming from California Attorney General Rob Bonta said in a statement, he says, Amazon coerces merchants into agreements that keep prices artificially high, knowing full well that they can't afford to say no. Then to international news, the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Wednesday advanced the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022 that would provide the island with four and a half billion bucks in security aid and another $2 billion loan guarantee, which will authorize the purchase for military equipment. The lawmakers passed the bill, moving it for consideration to the full Senate, according to a statement by Foreign Relations Committee ranking member Jim Reich. He says, quote, We must get ahead of a future crisis and give Xi Jinping reasons to think twice about invading or coercing Taiwan. 
I hope the full Senate will vote on this legislation soon. Then Armenian demonstrators have blocked Marshal Bagramian Prospect in central Yerevan near the parliament building on Wednesday, calling on the Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan to resign. Earlier in the day, Pashinyan told the parliament he was ready to make tough decisions and sign documents necessary for long-lasting peace in Armenia, though other measures, including declaring martial law, were apparently, quote, still on the table. Protesters took to the streets later Wednesday, saying Pashinyan was ready to make concessions to Azerbaijan, and then they were calling for more people to join those demonstrations. And Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and China have just signed an agreement on the construction of a railway between those countries. Kyrgyz leader Sadir Zaparov, the press office told Sputnik, quote, in Samarkand, Republic of Uzbekistan, that is, in Samarkand, on the sidelines of the summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, an agreement was signed between the Kyrgyz Republic's Transport and Communications Ministry, the Transport Ministry of the Republic of Uzbekistan, and the National Development and Reform Commission of the People's Republic of China on cooperation of a draft to build a China-Kyrgyzstan-Uzbekistan railroad. That's coming from the official spokesperson. Then also on Wednesday, this is kind of an odd story. Uh, It's sort of a bank robbery, but is it really a bank robbery if you're taking your own money? Because this happened in Lebanon by customers who wanted access to their own money, which the banks were preventing. There's a spiraling economic problem there, spiraling downward. In the first case, a woman and a few associates entered Blom Bank, B-L-O-M, Blom Bank, in the capital city of Beirut, brandishing a gun. She went in, politely asked for her own money. She walked out with 13,000 bucks from her own account, according to a depositors advocacy group talking to Reuters. Short time later, also happening on Wednesday, a man in the mountain city of LA entered Bank Med, armed with a gun, demanded some money that had been trapped, locked in his account. They would not give him access. Then last month, a different man held up a bank in Beirut to access, again, his own funds to pay for medical treatments for his ill father. That man was a little rougher. He took six hostages until he was able to access his $30,000 from his $200,000 in his account. Mind you, the banks are holding these people's money hostage. So this man took up six hostages until he said, give me 30,000 bucks, I'm gonna leave the balance with you. I need this money to take care of my dad. So that's what's happening in Lebanon. Banks are keeping people's money, not giving them access to it because that could cause financial collapse. Uh, Over to tech news, the Norwegian government has allowed the country's intelligence service to test a surveillance system that can capture large amounts of information about its own citizens. The intelligence service is meant to monitor threats against Norway from abroad. This sounds pretty familiar. Patriot Act, anyone? They are not allowed to monitor Norwegian citizens within the country's own borders, but that's what they're doing. 
So this new system is making it possible to capture large amounts of data about Norwegian citizens. Uh, that's coming from broadcaster NRK. Earlier this summer, the nation's defense ministry sent out a proposal for changes to this new intelligence act, which features what has been referred to as, quote, facilitated collection and would allow the intelligence service to collect and store mass data communications. That law has not yet been introduced because, among other things, there are concerns it may violate Norway's human rights obligations. On to some funny news of the day, at least weird. Uh, we we all know that Prince Andrew has come under fire for uh, the sexual abuse scandal uh, stemming from a young American woman, uh, who Virginia Jufre, who claims uh, Jeffrey Epstein and Glenn Maxwell trafficked her to Prince Andrew. So he's took a step back from royal duties, from royal life, and we've really not seen him uh, since then. But now he is a candidate for what they call a counselor of state. That's a position to stand in for the UK monarch, his big brother, Charles, when they're sick or out of town or whatever. Sky News is reporting this. King Charles III, his elder brother, who's now ascended the throne, is expected to appoint five counselors, including his wife, Camilla, Uh, and the top four that are in succession to the throne. So the most probable candidates are going to be Charles's son, Prince William, William's son, his first son, Prince George, Charles's other son, Prince Harry, Queen Elizabeth's second son, the new king's brother, Prince Andrew, and Andrew's daughter, Princess Beatrice, Queen Elizabeth's daughter, Princess Anne, might be, but arguably uh, she's one of the most well-respected royals. She will not become a counselor since she is 16th in line for succession. So it is a tangled web they weave there at Buckingham Palace. Then this day in history, back in 1588, the so-called Invincible Armada sent by Catholic King Philip II of Spain to overthrow Protestant Queen Elizabeth I of England is defeated in the English Channel. In 1916, World War I, tanks are used for the first time in battle at the Battle of the Somme. In 1959, Nikita Khrushchev becomes the first Soviet leader to visit the United States. In 1967, U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson, responding to a sniper attack at the University of Texas, Austin, writes a letter to Congress urging the enactment of gun control legislation. Then this day, many of you probably still remember this, back in 2008, Lehman Brothers files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That's the largest bankruptcy filing in U.S. history. And that will do it for your headlines. This Thursday, September 5th, 15th, you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Good timing tomorrow. Thank you. <laughs> it's like running back from the parking deck. All right, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, we're going to come back. We're going to have a conversation about the railroad issue and the strike that seems to be averted. You will know probably shortly a, and get more details. Bust the economy and David Tawil will know oh, man. about that. That would be an understatement, put it mildly. You thought our economic problems were difficult before. 
if there was a railroad strike, oh man, that would be magnified. But like you said, David Will is going to have a conversation about it. So let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio and video. And as Manila mentioned earlier, smash that rumble button. That's where we're basically appearing live. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We're trying to take your calls at 945. But let's jump to David Twill. David Twill is co-founder of ProChain Capital, a multi-strategy crypto asset fund covering the entire ecosystem of the burgeoning asset class with deep experience in crypto assets, token mining, venture capital, programming, and asset management. David has managed a hedge fund for more than 10 years. He's earned a JD degree from the University of Michigan Law School. And we are going to have a conversation about the tentative agreement that's been reached between railroad companies and unions over this issue of a strike that was potentially going to take place on Friday that the Biden administration has basically gotten involved in. So let's join David Twill. David, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. How are you? I am doing great. Better that you are joining us. And just as a heads up on what was taking place, the freight rail companies and unions representing tens of, this is the New York Times, representing tens of thousands of workers reached a tentative agreement to avoid what would have been likely an economically damaging strike um, after midnight talks brokered by the Labor Secretary, Martin Walsh. Yeah, Martin J. Walsh, President Biden, said early on Thursday morning. And this would have been a big deal. This was basically been a strike where it would have shut down the rail service in the United States, which is, I got to be honest, whatever economic damage that was there, I'm dealing with gas, inflation, and everything else. This would have made it dramatically worse. Two so, billion dollars a day. A that day. Much, wow. That's how day, much it would people. cost. Two billion with a B. So, David, get into this force. Can you explain, I guess, what was taking place, how all of this originally started in regards to the potential for the strike and the agreement that has been brokered by the labor secretary? Yeah, sure. So, look, I I think, um, you know, in the wake of um, the COVID pandemic and the inflation uh, that came thereafter, um, you know, hourly workers, have been demanding uh, higher wages. And that demand for higher wages, especially the minimum wage, started well before that even, uh, saying that the minimum wage was not keeping pace uh, with the, you know, necessary hikes in order to remain constant relative to inflation. And so um, we've seen this in other union um, scenarios and cases where, you know, union workers, uh, largely blue-collar workers, you know, were out there on the front lines, uh, so to say, uh, during the pandemic, were essential workers in a way, uh, because we did need goods, we did need, you know, certain essential services. They felt they took on a lot of risk, and uh, they didn't get paid for it then. They didn't get paid for it after, uh, when, you know, there was an inflation, and, and they're 
quality of life, although they're getting paid the same, their quality of life went down uh, or standard of living had to go down because they simply could not afford the same goods and services personally as they did before with the same paycheck. And so that's kind of what we had here where, you know, workers generally felt that they wanted more, uh, whether it be wages, whether it be benefits, um, and so forth. And so we were going to go ahead and experience a tremendous strike, uh, which seems now to have been averted. Well, they haven't agreed to it just yet because um, Bernie Sanders last night blocked a bill that would have forced the unions to accept whatever deal came to the table. Right now, um, some of the the union reps are saying, are you know, they haven't kicked this this deal back just yet. Um, so I personally think it's a little bit premature for the Biden administration to come out and wave. Oh, yeah. look, we made a we deal. Won. They're yeah. looking, you know, they yeah. they need a victory right now because Biden looks so terrible in the way of inflation and jobs numbers and what have you. It, there's so many. They need a victory. They need a win. So the Biden administration, I think, is a little premature to come out and say this because one of the problems, as you mentioned, David, about the quality of life issue for these workers is that during COVID. First of all, they haven't gotten any raises in three years. So COVID is sandwiched right there in the middle, smack center of that. They have had to work way more hours than they ever used to. There was a slough off of labor in the past three years. Um, we're not talking having the number, like 50,000 people down to 18,000 people. Uh, this is, I'm I'm quoting uh, numbers uh, done by research from a, a more perfect union, um, the in 2000 Union Pacific, I'm reading here. In 2000, Union Pacific employed 50,000 people and generated 11.8 billion dollars in profits. Today, Union Pacific employs 18,000 less people, wow. but manages to earn 85% more in revenue each year. Now, these people wow. are That means they're doing more they're doing work. double duty. Yeah. These people are working 80 plus hours a week. They're gone from home up to 120 hours a week because mind you, these rail jobs go coast to coast, right? That's how we get a lot of our goods. A lot of it's done by trucking. A lot of it's done, 40% to be uh, factually correct, uh, is done by train. And these people have not received any wage increases at all, not a dime. Meanwhile, they're getting slaughtered. They're getting slaughtered having to do backbreaking work like all day on these, at the train yards, on the trains going coast to coast, not getting a penny more outside of maybe some overtime, but then they're not getting any paid time off. That's incredible. I mean, these companies, Union Pacific, for example, making billions of dollars, the profit margins at the top are have grown exponentially. And these regular workers, the blue collar guys, aren't seeing a dime. I mean, that's part of the problem. So I don't know, David. I think that the Biden administration is way premature to say, oh, we got something. We're putting, it's on pause, this strike. I don't think so, personally. I don't think that's happening. I think we're going to see a strike. You think you're going to see it? I think we're going to see a strike. I I, I really hope for all of us, for all of us, that we don't see a strike. Uh, Because in a strike, uh, everyone loses. Nobody's going to win. First of all, you know, the, the people are going to dig their heels in deeper in terms of the parties negotiating. They're going to go ahead and point fingers. The mudslinging is going to get a lot worse. And at the same time, the, you know, the folks that are not involved directly in the negotiations, folks like you and I, are going to suffer the effects of 
failure of supply chain to a degree that we haven't yet seen it. We're going to see scarcity of goods and services. We're going to see prices go up. And then there's going to be all sorts of knock-on effects, you know, that we, you know, we, we probably know some of them, and there's probably a whole host of uh, knock-on effects that we don't know about at this point. So really, I pray, honestly, I hope that they do reach a deal that's equitable to both sides. Obviously, you know, no one's going to win and no one's going to lose. Hopefully, everyone gives a bit, um, and, uh, and there's a resolution to this. Um, you know, to go back and talk about the Biden administration not yet running you know, a victory lap. Listen, <laughs> what happened two days ago in terms of them cheering the Inflation Reduction Act? <laughs> I mean, this is certainly not the worst thing that this White House has done, you know, running a victory lap prematurely on this. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> hopefully they, they figure with the victory lap, you know, that will go ahead and push this over the goal line is my, is my you know, my guess terms of what the strategy is but i agree with you it's certainly premature until the the, the ink is you know on the page and dry nothing's a done deal what i'm hoping though i i, I look i am hoping there's no strike on this because like you said this would be utterly disastrous and biden may be celebrating prematurely but you can understand why i mean the ramifications of a strike would be astonishing i mean basically they're making a point of saying that nego- that rail is only second to transport meaning trucking and everything else I'm in regards to goods and services that are basically being moved all throughout the United States. From the standpoint of what the workers are getting, I'll just read it. Quote, thanks to the dedication of the members involved in the collective bargaining process, the association said in a news release, these new contracts will provide rail employees with 24% wage increases during a five-year period from 2020 to 2024, including an immediate payout of over 11000 upon ratification. So, look, they're getting the pay increases. That seems to be there. They're getting a payout in regards to the amount of money that the workers are getting. And like Manila said, it seems that they were doing a lot more work and not necessarily getting the pay. And to your point, these were essential workers, meaning where a lot of people can work from home. A lot of people can say, okay, I'm not going to take the risk of getting COVID. These guys were still on the job, having to continue to do the job. Um, Otherwise, things weren't going to get from point A to point B. Um, And look, when Biden was out there saying people should get $15,000 or $15 an hour starvation wage, Look, I think Biden was right, but Biden didn't necessarily go through with it in regards to everybody else who was an essential worker. At the very least, for something like rail, it doesn't necessarily seem like we can take the opportunity of taking a hit on rail, in which case something had to be done, in which case the Biden administration got more involved in these negotiations. You go into that part for me. Basically, rail is somewhat different. Ronald Reagan, if I remember correctly, um, didn't necessarily allow that strike to basically take place. And it seems that the Biden administration is also getting more involved in this. Give us this kind of explanation of why the U.S. government has the ability to get involved in the negotiations between unions and companies in regards to rail, as opposed to, let's say, other industries. Well, I think it's, you know, rail, um, you know, teeters on the edge of vital infrastructure. So if you were talking about, like, <laughs> electricity companies, um, similarly, which are, you know, a lot of the, they're not municipally owned mostly. Um, and I'm sure if there were, there was a strike, you know, with respect to electricity regarding the workers who are going to go out and service lines and so on, you know, I'm sure that the government would go ahead and get involved as well because it would essentially bring a lot of commerce uh, to somewhat of a screeching halt. And so it, it's of such, you know, national concern, and it couldn't, you know, there could be parts of it that are national security issues as well. I mean, 
we don't know, you know, all the goods being moved. Yeah, I could, you know, be getting Johnson and Johnson shampoo <laughs> by rail, but there could also be, you know, incredibly important, um, you know, goods that the government needs. Well, they even talk about hazardous materials, like stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got it. So, therefore, I think that the, it behooves the government to go ahead and get involved in these situations. And hopefully, you know, with this deal, you know, they'll be able to get to, you know, a couple of years worth of reprieve. I actually want to go back, though, to the point that was made at the outset regarding, you know, the productivity of these workers, the companies earning that much more revenue over off of a much lower worker base. Now, remember, guys, it's really important, you know, our technological advancement and the advancement of automation is going to go ahead and increasingly take workers out of these jobs, right? Machines and robots are going to displace lots and lots of these people over time. And so, you know, it's, it, there's another side to the argument, which is, yes, I totally agree with you. The workers for the hours work, they need to be getting paid and they need to be getting paid in line with at least whatever the rate of inflation is. It's not appropriate. But to go ahead and say, well, you know, the, the earnings are that much higher, the profitability is that much higher, and the, the worker base is that much lower, and so therefore the workers should be getting, you know, an increasingly amount of, an increasing amount of you know, growth on their wages. I don't know if that's the right argument because eventually we're going to take this workforce down to, again, because of automation and computers, we're going to take this workforce down to the singles of thousands, right, instead of the tens of thousands. Um, and at that point, the expectation is, is that the profitability margins will be even greater. But at the end of the day, you and I, in terms of how much we pay, um, in terms of our goods, a portion of which is, you know, the shipping cost, that should go down because the cost of shipping will be lower uh, because of, you know, the necessary costs that go into business. You know, being lower, a lot of it being taken over by automation. Yeah, I'll, I'll give I'll give you that one for sure because this, um, when you compare from 2001 to where we're at now at 2022, that you know that's 21 years, right? That's a whole person old enough to buy alcohol. Yeah. So yes, things <laughs> things have changed. Obviously, there there there's machines yeah. and and robots that can do a lot of the heavy lifting, uh, but that is a huge slough off of of workers and and people in the union now. Continuing from a more perfect union, their study was based on the America's four biggest carriers. That's CSX, KC Southern, Norfolk Southern, and Union Pacific. Now, besides reporting on these massive earnings that have increased some 85%, um, this is now now we're gonna go into your wheelhouse here, David. So yeah. this is about stock buybacks, repurchases, and what have you. So they wrote. In the past, most rail executives at those four surveyed railroads rewarded investors with modest yearly dividends. In 2009, the rail industry's operating margins overtook what the company spent on wages and benefits to relative to revenue. The shift had a massive impact on how much profit the firms made and how executives managed the company. From 2001 to 2009, the four rail firms spent $17 billion on dividend payments and stock repurchases in the last eight years. In the eight years after that inflection point, that amount increased to nearly four and a half times. Share repurchases the practice of executives using profits to buy the company's stock and boost its price were once effectively non-existent. 
Today, management regularly spends upwards of $10 billion a year on share repurchases. What does that mean in terms of stock, like repurchases? Are these the buybacks? Are they, you know, splitting the stock? What is happening here that the that, that this kind of revenue is four and a half times, not even double, four and a half times? Right. So, so there's, a, there's a couple points to be made. Um, you know, a CEO's uh, duties uh, and, you know, in turn, the board of directors is to go ahead and uh, increase value for shareholders. Uh, I mean, it, it, it is, that's, that's their primary mission. And, you know, you do that by uh, increasing the profitability of your business. Uh, and then secondarily, uh, if the increase in profitability isn't being recognized by the market in the way that you think it should in terms of how the market is valuing your company, you say, okay, I have excess cash. Rather than going ahead and potentially investing in the business or doing something else with it, we think the best value proposition is to go ahead and either buy back stock or incentivize our shareholders pay a higher share price by paying them dividends. Uh, so it, it, it's not ludicrous, you know, to have them done, have had them do this. On the other hand, you're right to say that maybe some of that profitability should have been shared around the company. You know, some companies, I, I don't know these four companies in particular, uh, but a lot of companies, you know, have share purchase plans available for their workers, even, you know, the lowest level workers. Right. And that's a way that, you know, workers can go ahead and, you know, instead of investing their money in the 401k and some basket of stocks, they could also invest, you know, directly in the stock of the company. And they usually got a pretty good break uh, on the share price when it comes to going ahead and investing in the stock purposes of tax and so on. So that's another way that, you know, workers can go ahead and essentially, if they think that they are, you know, being shortchanged on their wages in favor of shareholders, you know, they can participate as well. And obviously workers are the most, you know, they've got the most skin in the game. They're, they're spending their entire time working for this company. If they're doing a good job, it should be reflected in the share price. So I, I understand, you know, what, um, you know, what it looks like in terms of what CEOs have done with the cash. And you're not wrong to say, you know, they should be giving some of the benefit you know, to the, to the workers. On the other hand, you can imagine, you know, absent a strike like this, workers don't really have a lot of pressure uh, and weight to put on management. As opposed to your shareholders, they're pretty loud if they want to be. Um, and they're also the ones, in a way, um, that hire and fire you as a CEO, right? If they don't like the job you're doing, if they don't like what you're doing with the cash of the company, you know, they'll go ahead and vote you out. They're, they're in, it's a democratic system. But I mean, where, but where's the balance? Where's the balance of the CEO managing both the profits for the investors as well as treating the workers fairly? Right. There's no balance to that system. I mean, all things being equal, the workers shouldn't have to get to the point of saying, okay, we're going to stop working, especially when you get to the point where the workers are the ones who are basically making value for the company itself. Like, I, look, I get it, right? That at a certain point, you're going to have robots that are doing the job. I used to work as a software engineer. And even in the job of a software engineer, I would build systems that would basically eliminate the need for various people who are doing the job because the system basically did the job of two or three people. So I get it. By the same token, shouldn't there be some kind of balance in our system that allows for those people who may, let's say, lose their jobs because of either automation or something like that to get something out of it? 
Because currently the way it looks is if the profits always go up, the worker power always goes down. And in this case where the workers get to the point of saying, we're going to have a strike in order to get some level of balance in the system, it shouldn't get to that point. I mean, and I know this is talking about shoulds and shoulds don't necessarily matter. But the fact that they had to get to the point of saying, we will stop rail production in this country full stop if we're not necessarily getting some level of balance or getting something out of it. Shouldn't get to that point, right? I mean, am I I being Pollyannish and thinking that that's somewhat of an extreme and maybe the system shouldn't necessarily work in those terms? I, in this country, in a capitalist system where, you know, investors, you know, have considerable amount of rights, um, it it, it is a a bit, um, it's very difficult to strike the balance. I I, I agree. You want to, listen, by the way, you know what? What is what? What is certainly in favor of of the union is the unemployment rate right now. Right? We have incredibly low unemployment. If this company is not doing that right by you, it shouldn't be difficult to go out and get another job. If we're in a high unemployment environment, you know, maybe I have you know incre- an increasing amount of sympathy, um, you know, for the workers. But if, if you don't like, and again, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Right. I think that the workers should be getting their fair share. I think that the CEO needs to strike a good balance. And yes, I agree. <clears throat> we shouldn't get to one of these showdowns every couple of years. But you know what? Unfortunately, this is the way our government today, um, our, our, our country works. We get to showdowns all the time. We're going to have a showdown over the budget now, in the, in, you know, over yeah. deficit spending. Right? I mean, we, 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 this is normal for us. We've seen... You know, threatened government shutdowns a bunch of times already in Congress. So, you know, it's pretty normal for us. And so, you know, we've got strife, you know, all the time. We feel like, you know, we've got to get to the breaking point on every single issue before we get a resolution. It is unfortunate, but we see that a lot in our society today. And I think that it's not limited to this case. I think it's broadly the way things work, that people with sharp elbows have decided that this is what we got to do. In order to get what we want, we have to go to the very edge of the cliff. That's unfortunate. I mean, it it just really is. And you kind of made this point about how technological innovation is going to basically change our labor force. And I agree with you. Well, I mean, it's it's all neglect, right? I mean, just look at what they call deferred maintenance in Jackson, Mississippi, or the water crisis, right? Everything is deferred maintenance. So maybe these raises are deferred raises. And why do we have to get to that point of crises where people's lives are literally on the line? People can't afford to pay rent. These are people that were essential workers. And, you know, you would think at the start of the pandemic that the rail uh, operators would acknowledge that. Right. And, and and throw them a bone right now. You're offering them by the Biden administration is bro, you know trying to broker this deal. You're throwing a thousand dollars a year of a bonus at them. That should be an insult. A thousand dollars a year. That's not even a hundred dollars a month as a bonus. Like here's Merry Christmas. Here's an additional ninety dollars a month as a bonus. Um, yeah. And you know what? The shareholders of these companies, you know, one of the largest shareholders, uh, is is Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett. Yep. You know, people like to think of as a nice, uh, right. I, I think ninety plus year old, uh, you know, teddy bear. He didn't make right. that money for being a teddy bear. Right. <laughs> right. When, it, when it comes down to it, it's all about his his profits, and so he's going to drive these companies 
you know, as hard as he can in order to generate as much profitability. And that sometimes means paying workers as little as possible uh, in order to get them to do the job so that the profits remaining thereafter are as fat as possible. Yeah. David, I'm curious on your take on this. I mean, let's go to the automation thing for a moment. The automation thing is going to revolutionize our society. And I don't necessarily mean that in the best possible light, only because the way our society is arranged, people need to work in order for people to get food, in order to eat and pay for their bills and everything else. But to your point, it's not just going to be real. It's also going to be, let's say, taxi services, um, where you're going to get automated cars. You're going to get shipping into automation from the standpoint of getting a truck from point A to point B, where you're not necessarily going to need a driver for it. You're going to get stores that start to eliminate consumers. We see it now, where you have like one checkout counter, but the other ones self-checkout. Meaning our society is going to be revolutionized in the way that technology comes and eliminate aspects of the workforce. If we lived in a society where people could basically live and work wasn't, was almost secondary to the point of them making cash, no issue. That's not our world. How is our planet, our world, this country, going to be able to make that change over where, yes, we have necessary for less work, by the same token, people still need jobs? People need people. Yeah. At yeah. the end of the day. At people the end of the day. need people. How are we going to make that transition over? Before, before, wait, we got to get, before we get to the people need people, okay, because I, I agree, there is, I don't know if you meant by that, some sort of psychological, societal type of value, people needing to interact with other people. Well, all of that. Computer screens and so on. But with respect to the automation issue, I do believe, and probably within our lifetimes, we will get to a number of experiments, real experiments out there with guaranteed minimum income. income. Yeah. In other words, people not working and getting a guaranteed amount of income. There is not, I don't think there is going to be, if, 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 if we... It doesn't seem like the population growth is going to be, you know, at breakneck pace in the West um, to go ahead and demand as many jobs, you know, a couple decades from now. But do you think that we are cognitively there to be able to even grapple with that? It doesn't seem like from a consciousness of a society standpoint that we can accept, okay, some people just don't need to work. That we don't seem to be there. Like, it doesn't necessarily seem our, even our brain is in, in that mindset. We don't face reality until it's smack in the face. Like, these, you know, to go back a second, right? These rail companies, you know, did not face their labor issue until it was, you know, the 11th hour. And we do that as a nation. We're going to ignore this all the way. We're going to kick the can. We're not going to pay attention to it. And someday it's going to be evident that, unfortunately, loads and loads of people are out of work. But it's not because they're out of work because they, 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 they are unable to work because of their skill set. No, it's because there aren't jobs for them, right? The unemployment rate is so low, but yet there are tons and tons of people out of work. And what do people do when they're out of work, especially people that don't want to work to begin with? They'll do stupid things. They'll do troublesome things. They'll do maybe criminal things and so on. And at that point, someone's going to go ahead and unfortunately react in the wrong way, right? And talk about, you know, the, the people themselves and not really go ahead and address the cause. But eventually the cause will be addressed. Someone, some smart person will say, this has nothing to do with the people themselves. This has, this has to do with the system where we just don't have what for these people to do, A. And B, there's no way for them to make money, therefore. And so... We've got to figure out a way to put money in their pockets so they're not doing bad things, so they're not disrupting society, so they can go ahead and live their lives, 
you know, at a minimal level in peace, you know, and, and we can carry on. And increasingly over time, that number is going to have to grow. It's just, it has to. And I agree with you. We, we're totally not thinking that way. We're not ready for it. But I, I do think within my lifetime, you know, this will be a real issue. And, uh, you know, it'll smack us in the face. And, you know, we'll probably get it wrong on the first couple of rounds. But eventually we'll figure out the right recipe. From your mouth to God's ears. I put it on that one because no I don't see it. There's no easy fix for no. sure. No uh, easy fix. And to be fair, I'll just read this part. This is coming out of... Freight railroads and union reach tentative agreement on strike averted. This is their um, words, not mine. And it says, today the nation's freight railroads are pleased to announce the tentative agreement that have been reached between the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen Division of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air Rail, Transportation Workers, Transportation Division and the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen, collectively representing uh, approximately 60,000 employees, an attentive agreement has been reached with these unions to avert a potential strike in advance of Friday's deadline. Like you said, it's tentative. We'll see if this basically goes through. Hopefully it does because it is hard to fathom what this means if it doesn't go through. Um, but David, thank you, my man. We'll always appreciate these conversations. The voice you guys were listening to is David Tuwill. He's co-founder of ProChain Capital, a multi-strategy crypto asset fund covering the entire ecosystem of the burgeoning asset class with deep experience in crypto assets, token mining, venture capital, programming, and asset management. David has managed to hedge fund for more than 10 years and has earned a JD degree from the University of Michigan Law School. Yeah. Thank you, David. From his mouth to God's ears, man, because I don't see the changeover, right? Like when you look at it, you just hear... People going after, oh, these people are not working. Oh, these people are this and these oh, people are that. We've got calls. I don't think we, I think we skipped the break. Yeah, we we've skipped got, the break. We're going straight to right, calls. we go straight to calls. We've got several callers. We got two minutes for everybody. We got to start off with our buddy Tarif in New Orleans. Tarif, we got two minutes. Okay. Um, thank you. First, I'd like to say free join the sign. See how I go. Um, please, y'all, interview Diane Sarah, the uh, senator that was running for uh, Senate in New York. The one that's going against uh, Chuck E. T. Schumer. <laughs> right. Uh, my, uh, my, my, okay. Uh, my other comment. I got two others. Okay. My other comment. Okay. Uh, MBS is talking about Saudi Arabia is talking about cutting more than a hundred thousand barrels a day from out the market. They're talking about raising it to a higher than a hundred thousand. Really. And my other comment is yes. My other comment is um. The uh, Ragnar Group, right? The uh, the uh, the uh, PMC Ragnar Group just offered half a million prisoners in the Russian system a chance out if they come fight in Ukraine. They would get you know for like they signed a six month um, contract with the Wagner Group. Wait, wait, wait! How can the Ragnar Group, which is like Wagner, a military Wagner. Wagner, right, a military organization, make a determination about what takes place in Russian jails? One is political, yeah, the other one is military. We don't exactly have time to, to talk yeah, about that. But fair. yeah, it's good points for people to look up. Was that your was that your final point? Oh, right here. Me? Wagner Group, head of Russian mercenary group film recruiting in prisons. Interesting. Oh, I can t I can tell you about that, but that's a different conversation. Uh yeah, Tarif, thank you for that. Good points. Um our friend Peter in Florida. Hello, Peter. We got two minutes. Hello, man. I'm glad you got the game back together. <laughs> I'm gonna be fast. I, you know, your, your last guest, uh, David, there, there's a bunch of things he's missing. He mentioned about the low unemployment. The hell, $12 an hour? David, I'll get you 30 jobs right now in Florida at 12 bucks an hour. 
get to live in a house. You get to live in your car. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. It's not enough to live off. It's a starvation wage. That's right. Right, right. And, and, and David's vision of the future is going to happen in Germany. Think about it. Germany is the industrial powerhouse, and in two years, it's going to look like Flint, Michigan. Yep. They made their money by having cheap energy and a great workforce. Thousand percent right. The energy's gone. The outsourcing is going to start, and, you know, Volkswagen, Audi, Bosch, Siemens are going to all be closing plants in Germany and building them around the world. Talk about it, Peter. They got. You hit the nail on the head, Peter. Always appreciate when you call. They were able to get cheap energy. That cheap energy is gone. Absolutely right. Um, We have Robbie from Montana. Robbie. Hi, Robbie. What's going on? Welcome back, Jamal. Thanks, man. Um, oh, you're welcome. I'll be real fast. First, like the last caller from Florida, the unemployment rate, that's a bunch of crap because if you work two or three part-time jobs, people here are doing, those count as a job. Yep. So that number out there is a lie. Second, good on the, if, they, if the railroad people are able to get that, that $1,000 a year bonus, good luck to you because inflation, if you believe the government's numbers is 9%, losing nine cents of every dollar that you're getting. Federal government's going to tax you. Yep. Then from the state that you live in, they're going to tax you. Yeah, don't, don't, don't forget about buying food and gas. What good is it? It's, a, it's all smoke screens and mirrors. Entire, this entire pyramid runs on the collapse. It's inverted. Preach, Robbie, preach. Robbie, it seems that... a month. Yeah. You can't fill up your gas tank with $90. Yeah, you're basically... I mean, whatever money you're getting, like you said, that's them just trying to keep even. Like, this is them trading water. This is not necessarily them, you know, making bang for the buck. Um, but, but Robbie, please. Um, they're not even. They're not going to buy you dinner before they take you out. <laughs> what they're going to do to you? I mean, this is just stupid. Well, yeah, I'm. I'm with the. I mean, I'm a. I'm a child of a union worker. Yeah, I have family still today, still. Uh, you know, blue collar un, union people. Yeah, I'm with these rail workers. I feel percent. their pain. I get that there's automation, but at the end of the day, there is still. Human capital that is being spent, man hours that are being spent. So for for those people that still have to be there, they're not with their baby. They're not with their wife. They're not with their husband. They're not with their sick parent. They are at the rail yard or on the damn train to escort the cargo from left coast to right coast and back and forth and somewhere in the middle with stopovers in the middle. They This is not fair to them. And by the way, this was during COVID also. Like, it wasn't like these guys right. could just stop there was more what they were doing yeah. during COVID. So, That's this, right. this, this BS uh, victory lap that the Trump administration's coming out, Biden. he's going to have, uh, excuse me, did I say Trump? <laughs> but, the yeah. Biden, Trump too. The Biden, because this started under Trump. So, let's face it. So, Trump, Biden, whoever, whatever White House moron is in there taking a victory lap saying that, oh, this is such a great victory for, for labor and great for the unions. Hooey! That is hooey. Yeah. You're offering a $1,000 bonus at the end of the year, a 15% raise going back to 2020. Their raises were already too low to begin with. So 15% is still not keeping up with total inflation from day-to-day living expenses. Well, to be fair, so, 24%. But well, still, no, that's at the, end of, at the end of 2024. 20, 24, right. So at this point, they're looking at 15%. That is not keeping up with the yeah. rate of inflation and the cost of everything else because the $90 that that averages out to a month and your bonus, you cannot even fill up your gas tank. Yeah. So this is this no, is hooey, this, dumb victory lap. Th- now, this is the point I made last week, and I know y'all are out of time, uh, but 
look at what happened to the Roman Republic at the end of the Third Punic War because we are right there. And our people are too edu- are, they're too uneducated to understand what's happening. Well, it's not just, I mean, yeah, that is, look, like I said, I think we jumped the shark. And, you know, with the point the caller made about German um, energy getting cheap, that was Europe. Yeah. In, its, in and Peter of itself. In Florida, yeah. yeah. It wasn't just, um, you know, Germany. Yeah, Europe might be, the, or Germany may be the beating heart of industry, but Europe itself was getting that cheap fuel and everything else, and they were and they able were to run their industries on it. That's over with. And it all, that's over. all that's happened during COVID, whether it was under Trump COVID or Biden COVID, the policy doesn't matter. It's the same difference because yeah. the only, the richer got, the rich got richer. Massively richer. Massively richer. Yes. And the poor got poorer. The divide got bigger during COVID. Yes. And Biden is taking this bogus victory lap. Shame on him. He's like, oh, we won. We prevented the strike. Shame yeah, on you might have prevented the strike, but what did those people actually get in real terms? Shame. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. I want to thank our engineers. I want to thank our producers. I want to thank Manila Chan. I want to like all of you, we had a ton of callers today. That's great. Yes. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thank you, Thomas everybody. Chan Band is back together. We will see you guys bright and early in the morning. Thank Have a good all. one, guys. Bye bye. Fault Lines.